girls below. Some of our language is coming at you with irresistible force. If you don't think you can pass your strength test, then best back off now. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. Welcome back to another episode of The Dwellers Below. This will be episode 59. We're going to be talking about some scenarios. I've got some friends with me. I've got Sam Morgan. I've got Chris Cousins. And I've got a very special guest for the first time. Well, I mean, he was kind of on last week if you listened to the CACFest uh, portion of the episode. <laughs> I but, hope uh, you didn't. Yeah, you probably don't. But Lockie Mutchkeki in the house. How you doing? Good, mate. How you going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. What have we been doing, guys? Uh, okay, me first. I painted a between this episode and the last one. I painted an Age of Sigma army, about two thousand points. Oh, Nothing that, much. That makes me so jealous. I've painted one model. Yeah, but your model is better than my entire army. Yeah, maybe, but one model, and it's. I'm so glad it's done. Yeah, it's sitting here right in front of us, and oh my god, I can't. I just can't explain I think how nice it is. Pictures are up on uh, Twitter at hashtag thedwellersbelow dot com, and <laughs> and uh, how, many yeah. it, how many likes did it get? It nearly got 200 likes, which is a lot for me. I, I average about 0.5 yeah. likes per post. The, yeah, it's, a, it's the black coach coming through the realm gate. It is shit hot. And I'm just, I can't wait to see the rest of the army excel and exceed even this. The rest of the army will be a, a vast, vast disappointment, I suspect. But uh, I'm pretty happy with this. This is the, the biggest model I've ever painted, the, the most effort I've ever put into a model. And I reckon it's looking pretty good. I think you're right. Could get some uh, painting boats at CanCon. Maybe mm. that's what I'm trying to do. Are you going to have a display board? Yes. Good move. So uh, on the last episode, I was ragging about uh, like how difficult it is to get a display board if you're traveling to tournaments and that kind of thing. And then I, I've worked it out. I have a plan so that I can have my display board packed inside my small Games Workshop carry case as well as the rest of the army. Tell, tell us this plan. Right. It's genius. Here's what you do. You get two, like, three mil sheets of MDF mm-hmm. cut to fit. You put one underneath your foam, and then you put the other one on the top of the foam, and then it just fits into the case. And you just texture them. Off you go. So have, is is have, that a display board? Technically, yeah. I, like, I'll texture them, have and you, then the have, terrain will go on it, and it'll look just as good as the other half ass shitty display boards that people bring, and way worse than the display boards people put effort into. I reckon the play here is, on the way up, go to Macca's, steal, steal the tray, like you always do on the way up to Cancon, raid Macca's for the trays, but take PVA and, and like, sand with you. And is there a beach in Canberra for free sand? Lake Burley Griffin definitely yeah. has a waterf- waterfront <laughs> yeah, set, you can get set up. You'll get some, you can get dirt. Yeah, we'll find some dirt or some sand, and you just... Drizzle PVA all over the, the Macca's board, dip it in sand a couple of days before the event or the night before the event and hopefully the next morning it'll be dry and you can put models on it. And if you use dirt, it'll be dirt coloured, sorted. That's one approach that may or may not get you the painting points. It just says has a display board. Yeah, well, I guess we'll see what counts as a display board when you try it. Guess we will. <laughs> um, yeah, any other sweet hobby stuff? 2,000 points is... A pretty impressive effort. What are we talking? Uh, so it's a Stormcast army, so it's about four models. <laughs> four, four evocators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you spray them gold and then wash them? I, I actually didn't. I, I hand-painted the gold on like a chump because I forgot that you could buy gold spray now. Uh, 
Well, it's looking good. I mean, like it's only three color minimum, but like the couple of models that you had painted when you played me a few weeks ago. Yeah. Looking pretty good. I, I mean, the, the idea behind the army is that th this is the army I learned the game with. So I'm just trying to get it on the table, like to an okay standard, but it, it, like, I'm not going overboard with the painting. It's just like three, la you know, three layers of color mm -hmm. uh, for each of the main colors and you know, get the whole army done neatly, play games with it, learn how the game works and then cook up something interesting like more interesting or more unique for the next time because I, I like i always enjoyed playing armies that were different uh mm -hmm. more than i did playing kind of like straightforward things and that only worked because i understood like old warhammer well enough to sometimes come up with a good idea whereas with age of sigma i just don't know the game yet to know if my ideas are even workable or not so I mean, this is like the bridging army historically you've been pretty good at smashing out an army pretty quick and having it look really nice on the table. So Yeah, and, and when it's been like something a bit from left field, um, like, for example, the Wood Elves with the Forest Dragon or like the Beastman Army that I won CanCon with, uh, th like those kind of things were uh, like just exploiting a different angle in the way that the game worked uh, that maybe other people weren't thinking about. But when it comes to Age of Sigma, I don't know what any of the angles are. And like there aren't angles because they're all round bases and you can move in any direction. But if there were angles, I'm just saying for the purposes of metaphor... Uh, yeah, like, I don't know what they are yet. Apart from, like, 20 evocators with Gavriel. I'm sure that's fine. When you pick an army, do you pick armies that you can you know that you, you can have a painting process that, like, doesn't take too long to do? Not really. I, I've usually picked the army that I want to play with and then worked out a way to paint it either, like, to a nice standard or very quickly, and that's usually come afterwards. Uh, and it's actually, like, the gameplay and the game style that's usually the motivator for me. So I took a really similar approach to you with my daughters where I was like, this is my first Age of Sigmar army. Um, yeah. I'm going to paint to a rubric. So I'm going to you know, have the, the base color and the wash because that's going to get me the points. I'm going to use the three colors. I'm going to yeah. do the multiple basing elements. Um, and as I progressively understand the game better, then I'll start to tailor it towards what I like. I think it's a really good approach because you're running a net list. It's safe. You're going to win enough games that you're not um, sort of checking out of the system. Yeah. But, but equally, you can have enough flex that you can progressively add things in that are more suited to your style and what you like playing with. Yeah, so like after playing, what, like eight or ten games at this point, I've already started to like have some ideas for things that like might work, probably won't, but mm -hmm. some like concepts for things that actually like make more sense than they would have if I'd just tried to like make a list from scratch before actually having played some games. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at like mixed destruction armies and trying to like piece the puzzle together and things and... I don't know. I, like, I, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for just like have your training wheels army, try to work out what's going on, and worry about you know like winning tournaments and stuff later, like further down the track, uh, and just yeah, learning what your war scroll does and remembering that your Dracos have a breath attack in the shooting phase. Which I, I played a couple of games, one against Lockie and one against Nick. You did forget that a lot. Both times I had a Dracoth, it <laughs> it survived almost every turn of both of those games, and I did not shoot with it once. Our game was super close too. A couple of mortal wounds here and there would have made a massive difference. Yeah, that's true. I could have beaten you way earlier. Exactly. I mean, for me, it's the the way I sort of get into an army has changed since when I started the hobby. You know, t you know, ten, fifteen years ago. Back then, it was just. What do I think is going to be good? What do I want to play with game-wise? And now it, it's for me, I'll get an idea about a, an army, almost a concept for an army, but not a concept army. And then I, I kind of I go from there. So I'm already thinking about doing like a piratey kind of Ideneth army. And I like yeah. to play armies that 
you know, either I haven't done before um, or people around me haven't done before. So none of us are doing night horn. So I thought I'll jump on the night horn. It's yeah. a bit different to what I've done before. None of us have been playing Ideneth. I haven't seen a heap of them in the scene. Um, and I think they're really cool. Yeah. I haven't, I've barely read any of the rules for the Ideneth, but I just think I could do a, paint up a cool army and, you know, I'll find something that I want to play with. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I don't usually find the aesthetic kind of driving me, although I've started to get Iron Jaws pangs. And just like oh looking, boy. looking at those models and how thinking cool. about how good they'd look with like a purple and yellow armor color scheme, <laughs> which for long-time listeners of the show, you'll know that my last like seven armies have been purple and yellow. Uh, but I think Iron Jaws would look so good with it. Some really crisp white tribal tattoos go mm. all in. Yeah. So both of those comments segue really nicely. Chris speaking about the Dracoff and Nick speaking about the lack of Ideneth. I've just wrapped up a tournament up in Sydney, Moab. 74 players, pretty good. You didn't have a Dracoth or Ideneth? No, so there was only one Ideneth player out of 74. So that says to me that that's probably a good army to jump onto if you want to be unique. I don't think there were any Lizard Man or Seraphon armies at all either. No, there was zero. That's right. I mean, 74 players, small fry in the kind of scheme of things in Australia. We're running 200-man events, aren't we? So. Just, just casually, 200-man, biggest event in Age of Sigma. So it sold out in, what, 48 hours? It sold out in like less than a day, and then they added another 30 tickets... And then they added another 20 tickets. And then they added another 18 tickets. Then 54 more. And there's now 1,400 people signed up for CanCon. Quick maths. It took three hours for this to happen. Like The Australian scene is going absolutely bonkers right now. Realistically, I think it was 100 tickets in... 150 tickets in 12 hours. Yeah. And then not that much longer to sell the 50 extra that they tacked on. So, you know, congratulations to the TOs. That's a mammoth effort. That's bigger than anything we did in 8th. That's the, the Heralds huge. of War guys. Clint especially... Mm-hmm. Massive. Go, sorry, you, so, were, you were saying something. No, no, Sam? I just I had a look through the list. Two hundred heads. One notable absence. Nick Gentili. I don't think he got a ticket. He's, really? He's oh, been no. saying he did. Yeah, oh, I did asked he? him beforehand if he bought a ticket. He's I been saying for months how he's painting up his daughters and stuff like that. I had a look at the keen. list. I couldn't find his name unless he's playing under an alias because he's upset a fair few people. So I don't know. <laughs> like it's. <laughs> Could be a scoop. Anyway, we Sam. might have to do some fact checking yeah. on that. Moab. Uh, Moab, fantastic event, um, run up in Sydney. So, mother of all battles. Um, it's a convention. There was a number of other um, events there, primarily attended by Neckbeard. So, we're talking Neapolians, bolt action, forty k, uh, those sorts of things. Awesome secondhand buy, swap, and sell. Um, which, regrettably, I uh, I decided to only take carry-on on the flight. So <laughs> yeah. I opted not to go to the buy, swap and sell, which is probably a good thing um, overall. So, yeah, awesome event. A massive shout-out to the to the TO, Anthony the coach, uh, Magro, ripping bloke. Um, regrettably, didn't go the, the 5-0 and that I would have liked, um, but still had yeah, an awesome weekend. Yeah, all the pictures and things that I saw on... Uh yeah, on Twitter from like the dinner at the Viking joint on the Friday night and throughout the weekend. It looked like a super fun uh, weekend of wargaming. I mean, I love Moab. It's been years, but Moab was always a very good weekend. That's true. And like the, the turnout as well. Like When I won Moab, it was only like 20 players. I think uh, it was 40 or so when I won Moab. Yeah. <laughs> How many were there when you won Moab, Lockie? I've never actually been to Moab. Um, it was never one of my interstate trips that I'd, I'd lock in. Because the tournaments were bi- weren't big enough. <laughs> Not <laughs> enough bolt action rankings points. Uh, well, originally I was going to go up for bolt action and then Richmond were doing really well and 
Um, and yeah, so that's a bit of a sore spot. Yeah. But then Richmond lost. I'm like, shit, I want to go up to Moab now, but I don't want to play bold action. I want to play Age of Sigma. <laughs> so I've kind of done this like full loop. <laughs> Have you been doing hobby? I've been doing bold action hobby. So that's, where's your full loop now? No, it's just because I, I played a, a, an event today um, from Brad from The Dwellers. Um, I played in his event today and I've been trying to like, it's been a bit of a hobby C-A. blitz. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, th- I thought we could just let it go, but apparently not. No. <laughs> has, it, has anyone on this podcast ever let anything it's go? It's not even this podcast. Other podcasts have been doing it as well. Mm-hmm. That's true. Shout out to Morehammer, awesome podcast. I need to give that one a listen actually. Um, we're gonna yeah, we're so gonna name drop loads of podcasts, and you're gonna say, "I need to listen to I've that." Listened aren't we? to one or two. Right? I think I listened to Heralds of War, one, like one of them. That was pretty good. Um, the Shadowhammer guys, yeah, that was questionable. But <laughs> <laughs> what, no. what questions did you have about it, Lucky? Please elaborate. Oh, you know, um, I don't know. That's are what we, I'm are asking. we doing. Shoutouts? Is that the part of the show, Rob? I, I think, I've got I've got a couple I'd like to roll out. I think Sa- at this point we're doing hideous burns. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you are our shout-out guy. All right. Official Firstly, massive shout-out. Um, recent episode of Doom and Darkness, Feet Sam Morgan. Check that one out. <laughs> Was this the Beast of Chaos review? Beast of Chaos review. Yeah, I hope you've got a spare seven and a half hours for it because <laughs> you guys went into some serious detail. You were missing an action for like half of it as well. <laughs> what were you doing? Yeah, I had some, some connectivity issues which were actually me getting a drink of water and going to the toilet. Um <laughs> Another shout out for a fucking awesome, awesome, awesome podcast, Notorious AOS. Uh, I also happen to be on the most recent episode. <laughs> These are the New Zealand guys? Yeah, New Zealand guys. So this will take a while to edit because those guys drop the C-bomb every second sentence. So there was a fair bit of time stamping going on. Uh, so they drop it and then they edit it out? When it's appropriate to edit it out, yeah. <laughs> Never. Never appropriate. Editing out things is the worst. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to save my shout-outs for when they crop up in discussion because I, I think that's probably a more organic way to do things. I mean, Sam's only shouting out things he was on. So. Yeah. Speaking of which, most recent episode of The Dwellers Below featuring Sam Morgan. Yeah, if you listen to this episode that you're listening to right now, shout-out to those guys. <laughs> Sam Morgan's on that. Yeah, actually, I, th- I feel like the whole crew on that episode does a pretty stellar job. I mean, there's this new guy who just hasn't really contributed at all yet. And he's just told us about bolt action and how he enjoys painting buttons on his Napoleonic figures. But apart from that... Hashtag well, the new Brad. Well, segue. Hashtag I was going to go. The Kale King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I do, I do grow kale in my backyard. And I was, I, I, the guys at the CAC Fest found that quite funny. It was a bit of a gag. You brought kale to CAC Fest. I just, seriously, I just wanted to show Robbo and be like, oh, here, like wave it in his face. Here's, here's my kale I grow because, yeah... Um, you, you are a walking Melbourne cliche. Is it organic? You might want to keep that on the down low in Bendigo. Is it, is it organic fair trade kale? Uh, I, I guess. Like, isn't that the definition of kale? Like homegrown kale? Oh, it depends. There's no... did, did you steal it from someone? Uh, no. Probably fair trade then. Did, yeah. you, did you like fertilise it with people's organs to make it organic? Oh, I did do that though. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay, good. No, segue. Um, I, I've been doing bold action, but um, now that... The, this event's over. We've got a Bendigo event in a couple of weeks. The uh, what is it? The Bush Bash, which yeah. I've got a lot of hobby to do to get my Daughters of Cain up to scratch for that. Daughters of Cain. That's a bit of an outlier for the Melbourne scene. Has anyone it else is. been not, playing those recently? There's not many Daughters of Cain players, are there? No, you know, that, that I'm a breath of fresh air, really. You know, I'm apparently the seventh best Daughters of Cain player in in, in Australia. So you're the seventh. The, the seventh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I played one tournament. Se- seventh best Daughters player in this podcast. <laughs> 
Where do you sit, Sam? So I'm currently and perpetually ranked number one. Um, <laughs> shout out Hayden, to Hayden Hayden Walker. Is this after? Yeah. Hayden, yeah, Hayden Walker made a good charge, but unfortunately for, for poor Hayden, the snake king, he, uh, he's two points short. So at the end of the season, so long as he doesn't attend another event, I'll hold on to it. So Hayden, Bendigo Bush Bash, we'll see you there. We'll just put his name down in like third place or something. I, I think there might be some other people having issues with that. It's a, no, because they pen and paper the um, the event, so we'll just write it on the on the final standings. Also, no one's met Lockie yet. <laughs> Play under an alias. Oh, I totally could. That's probably a good idea, given your recent Twitter outbursts. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, some mistakes are made. A man of many friends. <laughs> Normally, I'm the one that like insults people. Um, I mean, at this point, we're, we're speaking to like the four people we haven't yet offended, and they'll be gone after this episode. So, they they, they all see you later, them. fuckers. Yeah. They don't like Lockie, obviously. I'm using this podcast, like, I'm coming on so I can, like, win the hearts and minds of the people, um, manipulate the scene to you, make it how I want. You're using the yeah, dwellers. That's, that's what podcasts are, right? You're trying to use the dwellers below to rehabilitate your image. I mean, it has to be true. You said it on a podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. So this is an echo chamber. We all hate soft scores. Oh, we, we there yet? I, so are we done? Are we? We're finished, Hobby. Hashtag gossip mulch cakey. Oh, the people do want... XOXO. <laughs> the people, I think, do want gossip mulch cakey, uh, mulch cakey to be a thing. All right, before we cut to a break then, why? what's been going on? You haven't made many friends recently. You've, no. you've in fact, made some, some enemies. A couple of flame wars on Twitter. Another one on Facebook just recently. Mm-hmm. We're giving you a platform, Lockie. This is you can you can shout out to the world whatever you want to say and no one can answer you because it's a podcast and it's not recorded live. I mean, we'll answer you because we're ruthlessly cynical, but and we'll hold you to account. Yeah, but we can edit that out. It's just you, mate. Say what you need to say. <laughs> no, look, I was sitting at at my desk on, at work on Monday morning and I was like, oh, you know, like I don't really want to be here. I was thinking about CanCon because like I just bought the ticket, blah blah. And I was like, bloody hell, I hate. Okay, so... <laughs> don't mince your words. Don't mince your words. I hate So, look, um, I think the Warhammer fantasy scene, um, you know, it developed over a long time. And I kind of... For- this is something that I forgot when I went on my Twitter rant. Um, but the tw- I forgot about facts. <laughs> the Warhammer fantasy scene um, developed over time, obviously. Like, took, you know, a decade or more of just, like, development. And they went kind of went through, like, well before I was there... Um, the soft scores of, of painting and sports like that. So it's all subjective and, and and comp and stuff like that. And kind of they, over time, they kind of weeded it out, right? That it wasn't the best way of doing things. So when you say subjective, what do you mean? Uh, well, Chris, would you like to... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like to take the rap for your heat. No, uh, you, I'm, I'm, so I know you'd be, be able to explain it more eloquently. So, so I, I, I'm not super across all of the different ways that stuff like painting and sports scoring has been done in AOS tournaments. But the impression that I've got from some of them, at least, is that they do sports scoring where, like, at the end of a game, you give your opponent an arbitrary score out of five for how mm-hmm. much you liked your game. Uh, that was something that used to be in the like, Warhammer fantasy scene going back a long time. And I, like, I think some of the people around this table were part of the reason that we, we moved away from that. We thought that something like a sports checklist where you, know, you get a series of questions, did my opponent measure everything correctly? You know, like, uh, tell me what their things did at the relevant points in time. Uh, like that kind of question checklist. And I think CanCon is doing something similar. Uh, we thought that that was a like a positive move away from the subjective thing. B, 
and because it's subjective, the kind of problem you run into is that people have different ideas about what constitutes a different number. So some people would say, oh, I give all my opponents a five out of five because that's, you know, like I, I had fun. That's a good game. They get full scores. And other people would say, I give most of my opponents a three because that's like a normal standard game. It's pretty good fun. They get a, like a, a normal standard score, which is like three. And I think that's like, I mean, particularly that's something that I've got that one of the biggest biggest issues with like subjective versus objective scoring um and so i mean look i'll i'll, I'll come clean i've only played one eight of sigma event that was the the blue dragon um gt what, what, what color dra- dragon was it how many coffees did you have i had a couple a couple of small coffees <laughs> did they help you, did they help your sports score um there was no sports scores was there i don't think there was no i think they because employed my, my oh. favorite Sport metric, which is don't be a dick. So yeah. at, at the end of the round, you can tell the TO if your opponent was a dick, and if someone is consistently a dick or a fuckwit, whichever you prefer, um, then perhaps that's when the TO intervenes. So this event I was out at, at the weekend, Moab. Um, so firstly, I, I want to try and um, delineate criticism of the pack versus criticism of the TO. So Anthony the TO did an absolutely fantastic job, and this is not a criticism of him, but rather the way that the pack was implemented. Sports was worth 30 points over the five games, so five points per game plus an additional five points available if you're someone's best opponent. Um, I really dislike that system. I think if you want to have some sort of um, metric for awarding best opponents, that's completely fine, but don't include it in the overall results. Um, I played five absolute gents. So I got to the end of round four. I turned up to the table and I started chatting to my opponent. He sort of said to me, you know what? all my opponents have been pretty good. And I said, well, I'm putting you on notice. I've had four fucking rippers. <laughs> and then we just try to outdo each other to get the best sports vote. Because yeah. we were like on the bottom table or middle tables or whatever. Um, but it was really, really cool. But I feel like I could have easily given any of those five guys my vote. And equally, there could have been people there that played five assholes and they still only get that same one vote. Yeah. Um, and for that to affect the overall results, I think is lame. Like the counter argument would be that you still have the score out of five for each game there. So your opponents are getting five out of five for their games and one of them gets the bonus. Even then, there was Whereas, no clear metric. Yeah. So uh, there, was no, there was no sort of, what am I scoring that against? Um, all five of my opponents got five. So as I say, they were, they were terrific. So yeah. And the core issue for me is it, it unfortunately it would open up abuse. I, I guess I'm, sh- I'm sure that didn't happen at Moab and... I've been, like, since I wrote my infamous post, uh, <laughs> um, I've been assured that that's not going to happen in Age of Sigma, blah, 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 but, you know, definitely I think it can open up chipmunking, collusion, that kind of thing. Like, what's, what's stopping you from like, grudging your mate and just agreeing, oh, let's give each other best, vote, uh, best sports votes um, and locking in five, five extra points or whatever? I mean, hopefully, again, hopefully that doesn't happen. So the issue is but, not yeah. the issue is not the prevalence of that happening. The issue is the opportunity for it to happen. And I think that the way that I put it is that the, like there's kind of a trade off. Where if you have this kind of generous, like I say generous, if you have the scoring system that says like go, you know, be as hand job under the table friendly as you can every game, uh, that might improve some number of games a bit but knowing wargamers a lot of them are already job under the table friendly anyway mm-hmm. and that getting a subject you know like getting a sports score added on isn't going to improve a lot of those that much but may- maybe it does improve like the average game but the downside if and when people do abuse that and in the past there have been instances where people have done like dodgy things like the backlash and the sour taste from that is so extreme that I, I just don't think it's I-, I think the risk outweighs the benefit but that's like an arbitrary uh, yeah, sure. like assumption 
I might be wrong about it, but it, it the risk of when it goes wrong to me doesn't seem worth the benefit that you get from having it because like generally people at wargaming tournaments are actually fucking good and like provide excellent games. So I might put my work overlord hat on here and pivot and say, Lockie, was the issue the content that you're saying subjective scores are no good, you guys need to move on? Or was the issue that we're coming in with old man wargamer takes? Oh. We're not part of a scene and we're throwing our two cents in when these guys have busted their ass to build something organically. Look, upon reflection, I think that's, <laughs> that's 100% the problem. Um, as I said, I've only actually played one, one tournament um, and I'm super keen to play more. I'm super keen to be part of this community. But I think I think, do think I'd need to remember, as others do, that... Um, to, to people, pull, yeah, you pull your head in, Lockie. One of my mates no, who's, yeah, an well, AOSer, who's an AOSer through and through messaged me recently um, and I sort of said to him, oh, is this player good? And he wrote back and he was just like taking the piss out of me. He said, oh, he didn't play Warhammer Fantasy Battle 8th Edition. He can't be good based on your... <laughs> like, <laughs> so I think there's like a, there's a running joke sort of within the scene there. But my, yeah. like, my observation coming out of Sydney is that the two scenes are progressively integrating the, the old crew and the new crew. And it's awesome. Ripping blokes in both yeah. both both groups. To offer a skerrick of defense of Lockie's position here, which is all that I feel is appropriate. I feel like abandoning him to the wolves is more our play here. Um, I, I think if you put uh, some of that discussion into a global context, uh, if you if people who have mm-hmm. been listening to the Just Saying podcast, to uh, the Honest Wargamer, you will have heard some of these same kind of things sort of mirrored in their discussions about. Uh, secondary obje- objectives and differentiating people on the same tournament record. I like. I, I think that there is uh, like a discussion to be had about how to do these things, and different tournaments will do them in different ways. And like, I I, th- I think some of those ways are kind of equally good, and some of those ways are maybe le- like not as good as others. But the fact that a tournament goes in one direction rather than another doesn't mean it's the wrong way. And I guess we'll see over time how that shakes out. Yeah, and I look at it from a, a slightly different perspective. As someone who's TO'd a lot of events, and I, I often look at things from a, you know, how how can I run my own events and how how, how would I do it? Yeah, and if you're giving a mark every game for sports, that's in a let's think a two hundred player event. That's two hundred numbers. You've got extra numbers. You've got to input every round. You know, that's a lot of extra data entry that you you don't necessarily need to have. So, and like I quite early on in my TOing, got rid of any sports scoring for, for the two reasons. One was it was this data entry that I had to do that I didn't feel like I necessarily needed to do. Uh, but the other thing was I had a situation where someone marked an opponent down for sports and I'd seen them... And they were brothers. No. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> no, I wasn't there for that, but yeah, good story. Um, where... They marked someone down for sports and the person they marked down is was a stand-up bloke who I knew every, he con- consistently would win best sports awards. And the, the person who marked him down had been having a bad game. He'd been rolling poorly and, and, and was beaten quite, quite badly. And so I, I asked him afterwards, oh, why did you mark your opponent down? And he couldn't actually justify it at all. And all, it was just more of a... Hey, and I just said, look, I'm checking up on it. I follow up any any negative sports scores as a TO. I follow up with the players to figure out what's going on in the event. And he couldn't justify it. And he only did it because he'd lost and because he rolled badly and he'd, it, he'd kind of not enjoyed the game from that perspective. But his opponent had actually been really good because I'd been watching the game. And so from that perspective, there was no 
sort of way to justify that. And so I don't feel like that player should have been marked down. So what I now do at most of my events or almost all of my events is you, you, you baseline, there is no sports scoring, but there's a provision in the pack to have points deducted. And so if you've got an issue, come up to the TO, no matter who it is, come up to the TO, tell me about the issue. And then I'll go and discuss it with that player and, you know, put in a penalty. Cause I think as a TO, you've got to be strong enough to do that because if people think they can get away with stuff, they will. But there are there are problems with that as well, though. Like in this case, as you say, like you knew the guy who got marked down was a stand-up bloke, but you know if they're your mate, you're going to say that. Um, there's a bias there. Yeah, like I mean, there's again, there's like pros and cons to different th- ways of doing it. L- less data entry is good, but having to go and walk up to a bunch of people after every game to like, well, not every game, but like having to do that extended conversation from time to time is like a trade-off the other way. But I I guess we'll see what actually happens and we'll need to put our money where our mouth is if we actually have any kind of consensus about these kind of issues and, you know, run some events, see what kind of takes. But uh, I guess we'll see. At the end of the day, Lockie doesn't like it. 199 people plus Lockie have signed up for CanCon. So most of them don't like Lockie. Clearly someone someone likes it. Clearly we don't have a problem with it. Um, Frankly, it's much of a muchness. If there's, if there's, if there's packs that run sports one way versus packs that run sports the other way, I'm still going to play because I'm there to play. Yeah, I think the event's going to be amazing anyway. There always are when they're you know 100 plus. This is obviously 200, but anything that big is always going to be a great event. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the day, it's always help you know healthy to have some constructive um, criticism as well about about the pack. No, it's no. not. My my observation okay, would be we're, we're not there yet. When we're not yeah. there for constructive sort of conversation. The the there's a there's maybe a lack of maturity at the moment and a level of defensiveness, um, but you know, as people get to know each other better, I think that will abide and we'll we'll be able to have these sorts of conversations without it becoming um, tetchy. We'll probably cop a heap of flack for this segment, so we'll cut it here. Um, <laughs> I'll edit it all out, obviously, because that's what we do. Please send I'm your like hate mail to at Nick Cohen. Yeah. At Nick Cohen. <laughs> at ne- <laughs> Cast dice it. C A S. We'll have a break. We'll come back. We'll talk scenarios.
we're going to talk scenarios. Well, that was the plan. But the egg, he's he's chomping at the bit. He he's like Gentili on the warpath. He wants to he wants to rant. He's, he's uh, ready to go. He's revved up. He's been ranting all all break. So, so you say this, but the actual rant comes later. Spoiler: the only reason I suggested we talk about battle plans as a topic is because I have a particular rant I want to go on. But that's going to happen later. Uh, so you're not doing a rant? No, like right now, I'm I'm raising something that's been talked about elsewhere, and like I'm interested in your feedback. And if you disagree with me, I'll then tell you why you're wrong. Uh, it's like the Lockheed Mulch Cakey school of thought. Yeah, except that this will hopefully not alienate everyone in the AOS community. Are you going against the uh, the echo chamber? I am the echo chamber. Right. Um, so, uh, for anyone, and I don't know how many people uh, at this table or in like the dwe- what do we call the dwellers fans these days? Any creepsters out creepsters, there? The creepsters. Uh, yes. So I don't know how many of the creepsters. Shout, are shout out to all the creepsters out there. Uh, up to date on the Just Saying podcast, which I think comes out of like Liverpool in the UK. Can, or can you even make out anything they say? Yes, I'm very fluent in Liverpudlian. Uh, and uh, The Honest Wargamer as well. There's been some chat on both of those, and I think Just Saying is pushing it. It's kind of instigating it. The Honest Wargamer has been backing it up. Uh, one of the things they're talking about doing is trying to put together a standardised tournament pack. So basically the idea is to put together a document that is like the outline or a framework for a tournament pack that depending on exactly how enthusiastic Rob from, from The Honest Wargamer is at any given point in time, uh, that potentially any or every TO will use as the basis for their tournament pack. And that will include things like uh, which secondary objectives to use, how to do scoring, that kind of thing, is to put a generic document together that's going to be their vision, as I take it, is going to be standard for Age of Sigmar tournaments across England or across the world. Is this a good thing? Is this something that is a that we should be encouraging? Is this community driven? Yeah, the, the the idea is that they will like consult or collate or like bring together a lot of uh, like a lot of feedback, and that once it's kind of put together, it will be a like blueprint document for Age of Sigmar tournaments. You know what it makes me think of? The Ninth Age. <laughs> oh wow! It makes me think of the ITC. And I think part of it is based on that, although there are issues with the ITC. Talk, yeah. talk to me about the ITC. It's a 40K thing? So this is the, the 40K sort of mechanism for standardisation. And I sort of think of this as a format. So we're saying this is a format of playing matched play. So like mm. match play is a subset of Age of Sigma along with um, narrative or open play. And then a subset of match play is, is this format. Um, I think it's a good idea. I, like, uh, it needs to be implemented well. So this is the sort of thing uh, where the decision process and then the final pack actually need to stand up. They need to, um, you know, actually float under pressure. Uh, but as an idea, I like it. As a construct, I like it. Isn't this what the General's Handbook should have been, though? <laughs> no, no. So the General's Handbook is a marketing tool. So it's something you need to purchase annually and it's something that only works in conjunction with other documents which also turn over. So it's like, this is like some economics bullshit that Games Workshop are pulling on us. What they really should do is release all four of these documents and then maybe at the midpoint in the cycle, like around Christmas, for instance, release a single document that's 30 pages and $60. I'd buy that. Like if I had all of my shit in one book, that would be so convenient. It would be handy. It's, I mean, it's a pill carrying all four books and stuff. But, and, and that's 
Yeah, that's kind of what the the general's handbook is. And but is is what you're suggesting what the general's handbook could be? Like, could the general's handbook be the the defining thing that doesn't need that much changing to 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 make it a tournament pack? So I th- I think their idea is that it goes well beyond the general's handbook and even the match play section of the general's handbook. There is more in it. You can read it. Uh, like goes beyond the general's handbook in terms of codifying how to run an event. Uh, I th- and I think their idea is to say th- things like, what should your tiebreakers be? What should you be doing in regards to secondary scenarios? And answering those kind of questions in a prescriptive way. Like this is what a, an Age of Sigma tournament or what the baseline of an Age of Sigma tournament should be. So that's awesome for consistency, which is important but it's poor for variety, which is what keeps you interested. So there's like a balance they need to strike there that I think would be incredibly challenging. And like, I don't know if Lockie was joking or serious, but from my perspective, the Ninth Age is a failed project um, <laughs> where we have this sort of like a c- design by a committee. So one group wants blue, the other group wants red. What they end up getting is purple and everyone's unhappy. Fuck that. No, that's why exactly why I said Ninth Age because there's so much community input. I mean, like, go onto the Ninth Age forums, it's just a dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> like, basically, the ETC is... Well, the Ninth Age is the ETC, and if you're not in that um, kind of, I don't know, old boys club, then it's, it's, it's not a very good system. And, yeah, I don't know. Do we know what the problems are with the ITC, so the 40K equivalent to this? Do we know what the issues are? I, I don't. It seems popular. I haven't heard anything good about it, but I'll, I'll straight up, I'm not in the know. I'm not involved with 40K. It seems to be pretty popular. I've seen it used uh, over here a fair bit at some, um, some major events. But yeah, I don't know enough about it to comment on it. No, I think these kind of match play um, kind of things are really good. So like um, Fantasy Flight Games do like some really great stuff with like X-Wing um, in terms of their match play kind of thing. They, they tell exactly how, like they do kits on, you know, at, at the regional level, at the national level. They say this is as what you're suggesting, Chris. It's like this is how you run a tournament. This is like um, basically all the tiebreakers. This is everything that you need to do. And then you, if TOs want to or stores want to, they can that they can move away from that. But I think the problem, well, basically what you need is that coming from the top down level rather than bottom up, because otherwise, you know, I, like I'm not a, not a big fan of authorita- authoritarianism. But I think in terms of uh, a, a gaming system. You just need like games workshop. Uh, games workshop. I mean, they need to be good at designing rules, but um, they need to be like, look, this is how it is, guys. Run with it. So, like, the, the, one of the problems I've had with, I, I say problems I've had with, is though there's like a big issue in my opinion counts. But one of the points where I disagree with some of what I've heard from, uh, like for example, the just saying guys, is that they want. And part of their vision for this thing is that it's going to be in line with what Games Workshop have provided. Like they want things like the realm rules to be incorporated as fully as possible because that's part of Games Workshop's like what Games Workshop wants for the game. And I, like just to me, I would say that we have like thirty years of Games Workshop demonstrating that they don't know better than the people who play their game. And like the kind of fixes to their games that have happened over the years through like tournament scenes evolving have actually been improved, like generally speaking improvements for running tournaments and that like, actually trying to keep in line with the, the games workshop vision isn't necessarily what we should be doing because, you know, games workshop shop have what, like 10 or 20 people writing rules, a tournament scene coming together and like, like evolving and improving rules packs over time has hundreds of people working on it. And I think the, the result that you get out of that doesn't have to be, 
the Games Workshop vision and can be a lot better. I'm going to stop you there because where do you stop? Because what you've suggested sounds great. The community coming up with, you know, fixing the rules, making the rules, changing it, you know, iterating it over time. That's the ninth age. And we've just discussed that the ninth age, in our belief, is a failure. So my issue is, is where do you stop? Is that the ninth age or is that the eight, like the eighth edition tournaments that we were running after like four years of eighth edition had been going? I mean, it, from, from what you've just described to me, it sounded a hell of a lot like how the ninth age is organised. And yet well, the we advent of the ninth age yeah. at any rate, what it's, what it's become, we can't really comment on yeah. Yeah, so that was what what I was trying to invoke was the way that over the course of the time that we were playing like seventh and eighth edition Warhammer tournaments, uh, different conventions became adopted, and by the end of like the, by the end of eighth edition's life cycle, the kind of things that were happening at tournaments weren't necessarily what Games Workshop had envisioned, and for what we wanted out of the game, I think were, were better than what Games Workshop wanted us to be doing. So my observation would be. Games Workshop sometimes fail to recognise their games are an ecosystem so that the things are interrelated. Um, and a recent example of that would be the Zangor Enlightened. So Games Workshop release a new book, Beasts of Chaos. And not only do they give the Zangor Enlightened an additional attack, so that's a lever, they've increased their damage output, they used another lever to reduce their points. So they've played with two levers, which they, they, they can't have tested holistically. So they've made them both better and cheaper at the same time when they're already a completely competent unit. That, that sort of suggests to me that's like a... Um, Ill, and, and Ill, no, it's an illustration that they don't recognise how things work in, in a broader ecosystem. And I think that the um, realm rules are another example of that, things that haven't been adequately tested or understood the impact that they have on the overall game. I, I mean, part of the... You know, you, I think a, a perfect illustration of that is where they go, well, cool, we're going to run tournaments with realm rules, but we won't use beasts because we're not going to make everyone bring, like, a monster to yeah, the that, tournament in case they use it. That's acceptance that the, the thing doesn't work. Y yeah, or that it hasn't been thought out for the kind of things that we're trying to do with their rules pack when we run tournaments. Um, I, personally, I think that the... Uh, draw minor loss major loss system is designed for determining a winner from an individual game and is not the best system for scoring games at like a tournament where you like having a draw isn't like fuck we just wasted two hours it's actually like a reasonable thing to have because you're playing five or six games across a weekend like I think that way of determining a winner of a game is not designed for tournaments and that could be an area that we look at moving beyond uh, going forward but yeah, you need, I guess you need consensus, though, right? Like you need everyone to become. And this, and this is, and this is, and this whole discussion is kind of reinforcing how I feel about having a, a global overarching tournament system or default player pack. In that, but how do you get consensus for it? And that's my issue: is different people in different areas like to do things in different ways, and how we do things here in the south of, in the you know, in, in Victoria, in Australia, compared to how we do it in Queensland, versus even how we do it in the US or the UK. It's totally different. And so I think it's a great idea to have a, a skeleton player pack system recommendation that here's what you can do and then people can base what they want to do off that or they can go their own way. But, um, yeah, I think the I like the variety. I like that different events do, do different things. I can play one event with Realm Rules and then another event might not have them. So, yeah, would I like to see every event using the same pack a la Magic or X-Wing? Not so much. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's part of where, like, m my worry comes in where, uh, like, people then feel entitled, 
for that tournament pack to be given to them. So if you want to run you know, a tournament that is not 2,000 points or if you want to use a different tiebreaker or something, people then potentially turn around and say, why aren't you doing the standard thing? Why are you doing this weird thing? And I, I, like, I have a lot of respect for TOs. They give up their weekend so that other people... And put in way more effort than like your average tournament player does to make the event happen. Um, and I think like we should respect the vision that people doing that have for their events and say, you, like, you know what, to some extent, you know, you're giving up your weekend to do this. You're running the event. What you want, we should respect. If you don't like it, maybe you don't have to go. But you know, to, like to some extent, we shouldn't be trying to tell TOs what they have to do. We should be trying to help them do what they want to do, which is provide a great experience to the people playing their tournaments. I, I think like, as much as a standardized pack could be a good move, I would almost prefer it to be a list of don'ts rather than do's. So rather than say like you have to use strength of schedule or you should use strength of schedule for your tiebreaker, maybe say don't use best sports votes for your tiebreaker and here's why, as an example. Um, as a totally unrelated example. <laughs> but but it's, it's a bit, bit of lock explaining. Yeah. But like the, the sort of thing where like rather than say this is what a standard tournament should look like would be to say something like this is maybe not a great idea and, he, and then an explanation for why. I, I think I would be more supportive of that kind of a direction for this thing, however it pans out. But one of the other things that may or may not be in this in terms of like standardizing things and what's good for tournaments are what battle plans we use. And that's my like awkward segue from a way more extended discussion than I was expecting wow. to actually have. He, yeah, look for context, he talked up this bridge from one topic to to, to scenarios, and I wasn't really there. I didn't think you guys were going to get so stuck into the standardized tournament pack thing. Like that could have been the whole episode in and of itself. To ruin your sweet segue even further, I'm going to do a Sam Morgan style. I'm going to do a shout out. We talked a bit about TOs and the effort they put in. Heralds of War, I don't know when they did it. I was listening to it relatively recently, did an episode on... It was almost like a tournament etiquette kind of episode. It was, you know, what should you expect coming into a tournament? What's your preparation? How can you make the TO's life easier? Have a listen to it, particularly in the lead-up to CanCon, which we're all super excited for. It's going to be massive. It's going to be a 200-player event in a massive hall. It's going to be busy. They're not going to be able to communicate with all 200 people effectively at, at once. So have a listen to that Heralds episode. Um you know, it's totally unrelated to anything we've just talked about. I mean, about, but. S- side note on that episode, I think making TO's life easier, absolutely. Some of the etiquette discussion on that show, and I think Facehammer also did quite a bit on that recently. Uh, I-, I think think of those maybe as guidelines rather than like things you have to do. Uh, some of the things like having movement trays. If your opponent doesn't have movement trays, they're not necessarily like breaching tournament etiquette. If they've got 400 models, maybe they should have them or they need to fucking move them and not like stress too much about three millimeters this way or that. But like, you know, like, let's be like reasonable about what we demand of players. But uh, yeah, like there's definitely some healthy discussion out there about like these kind of things moving forward. But by movement trays, they're the best. Movement trays are great. I, I, I tried to order some the other day and was like, this will be fucking fantastic. And then remembered I don't have a job and it's 50 bucks. I can't really afford to spend. Uh, but yeah, get get your movement trays if you have a job. All right, we're going to have a quick break and then we're actually going to talk about <laughs> or scenarios or whatever they're called in this game. Naughty boys in nasty schools and masters breaking all the rules Having fun and playing pools Smashing up the woodwork All the teachers in the pub Passing and a ready rub Trying not to think of when the lunchtime bell will ring again Oh, what fun 
We are backity back. We're talking scenarios, unless you've got another sweet uh, segue bridge thing for us, Cousins. Actually, before we talk about scenarios, I'd like to talk about battle plans. Battle? Oh, battle plans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, I was thinking missions. Yeah. Or, or poss- from the codex that I've got in front of me. <laughs> All right. We're going to go through them one by one. We're just going to do the 12 that are in the general's handbook, uh, mostly because most people pretty much know the, the six in the core rulebook because they've been around for a while. And they're actually pretty similar, having having read through them. There's there's a generally one scenario in the in the core book that matches up very similarly to to one in the uh, general's handbook. So we're just going to go in order. We're just going to talk about what we like about them, if we think they're suitable for tournament play, uh, if we think they kind of promote good games of Age of Sigma, and and, and so on. And this is how my segue works because we were just talking about how to like put together a tournament pack that might be applicable across things and now we're talking about one of the ways that we can maybe do this which is which kind of scenarios we think are good. Fucking good scenario, Egg. Well done. It's actually a battle plan. Your segue didn't work. Stop, you know, trying to claim it. My segue is a fetch. Get the fuck out. Knife to the heart. Two warlords are each struggling to gain control. I'm not going to read no. the whole thing. <laughs> oh boy. F- fucking accent. <laughs> Two warlords are struggling to gain control of a vital objective that lies deep in their opponent's territory. (laughs) Both must strive to capture their objective first, ruthlessly wiping out any enemy incursions into their own territory while pushing their own forces deep into the enemy's heartland. I was pelvic thrusting there, just so you know. For context, you've had... How many standard drinks so far? <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking Adnam's Broadside for our UK listeners. Uh, you can get that in Australia. And I'm like three deep. For our kale eaters, I'm drinking <laughs> Moondog Craft Brewery, Old Mate Pale Ale. We did also bust out the the, the Boat Rocker uh, Ramjet, which is a 14.5% Imperial Stout. And for any... I, I know that at least like the Jimbo and Mitzi podcast show, TV, YouTube channel thing uh, do include beer reviews. So that was our beer review. We're drinking them. Sweet shout out. Yeah, I've, I've been like painting an entire army in the time it took you to paint one fucking black coat. So this is like I've had to re- listen to a lot of shit. So this is like a re- not not shit. I've had to listen to a lot of quality content. I apologize. Shout out Warhammer Weekly. That's a really good show to paint too. So battle plans. <laughs> it's it's like a reverse bridge. It's like a bridge is where you go from it's one topic to another and this is we started with the topic and we even read out part of the scenario and now we're talking about completely knife to the heart i can do this one in 30 seconds knife to the heart used to be that no any and no enemy models could be within 6 for you to win so you need to hold both objectives at the same time you deploy on the diagonal you're 20 inches in um, it used to be basically you had to table the opponent. They've now changed it so that it follows the standard um, objective capturing from the main rules. That improves this scenario significantly because it just means you need to have more models within six than your opponent. 
this is a good scenario to have in events because it differentiates um, the results because it's not uncommon to have either a minor victory or a draw in this one. Yeah, from that perspective, it's good for events because it is it encourages sort of draws. I don't particularly like the scenario because it's there's just two objectives. The diagonal deployment kind of doesn't work with having just two objectives because it just kind of becomes a bit of a mash in the middle. It's, you know, everything gets plonked on one objective and moves straight towards another objective in, in the games that I've seen. And for me, that doesn't encourage a, an interesting game of, of Age of Sigma. I, I think this scenario is really good because I played it against Nick and I won. And that's why I think it's bad. <laughs> um, bit like, on, on the one hand, differentiating uh, result, differentiating results, like having a reasonably a reasonable likely outcome of a non-major victory is something I think is like a, a good thing to have, uh, and also having like two objectives to fight for is like you have to be in multiple places on the board is good. But as we'll see with some of the other scenarios, I think having to be in like four or six places on the board is potentially even better in terms of forcing people out from just having like a blob of an army moving towards a blob of another army and actually having to like play across the entire six by four board. What I was thinking though is a lot of the scenarios do encourage that, that kind of split the board up, you know, you deploy wide, kind of use the whole, whole battlefield. And, and while I kind of, on one hand, don't like the just push it all into the middle and it's a bit of a, a bit of a mush, I actually think it makes for a technically very interesting game in that the positioning of individual units and stuff like that can really matter because it's which units attacking which and units getting bogged down in combat. And, and we played the other day and it was a very interesting game in that which unit was fighting where and, and kind of angles of attack and stuff like that was really interesting, even though we weren't using most of the board. So from that perspective, I think it's it's interesting. And like Sam said initially, I think it's really important. It differentiates. It's not just always going to be a minor win to some people. If you can just go straight through your opponent's army, you're likely to win this. So it probably favours stronger kind of killy, straight-up killy armies that are just going to wipe the opponent out and just push straight through them and win. But, yeah, I think, you know, it's a... A scenario that, or battle plan that suits some armies better than others, but they were all like that. The army, uh, so the 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 scenario seems really good um, if you're a stormcast army, or, uh, like if you're deep striking a lot of stuff. They yeah, can kind of go in and do a bit of an alpha strike. So I think especially that like the diagonal deployment thing, because once you draw the line across and then you pull back nine inches from the center line, you don't actually have as much width, like anywhere near as much width as you have when you're on a, when you're deploying the whole way across like uh, the long edge. And like, I think that's really noticeable. And yeah, as you say, once you have armies like uh, Stormcast or Nighthaunt or Beasts or Lizardmen or Seraphon or any of the Chaos armies that have ways of like popping up or deep striking or infiltrating or whatever it is, um, those kind of things are really good in this sort of scenario because you can kind of get some of that width to the board back. But if you just plonk your army down and move towards people like you know, a sensible army, although not that any Age of Sigma armies are sensible, um, yeah, like if you don't have mobility affecting things then i think you really can feel the pinch of the diagonal deployment compared to the uh six foot wide one i might just push back on that go on uh you can only win this scenario from the third battle round so in some of the newer battle tomes um the deep striking is conditional so to be you have to come down before turn x whatever whatever that might be so that's just one thing to be aware of um if you do alpha strike them 
um, and and get the objective turns one or two, it's that you can't win it till the third round. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm saying here more in terms of just the general philosophy behind the diagonal deployment. Um, seems kind of cool, but I think actually re- reduces the amount, as Nick was saying, reduces the amount of like actual battlefield that you're playing over outside of those kind of movement shenanigans. And I think those armies have plenty of other advantages already. And so this was a discussion we had, uh, cousins and I had when we played this scenario. And I want to run this by you, Sam, because you kind of know a bit more about the game than we do. Um, the It says, starting from the third battle round, one player immediately wins a major victory if they have control of both objectives. If I take control of both objectives mm-hmm. at the end of the second battle round... Mm-hmm. And then my opponent, game over. It's just game over, isn't it? My opponent starts the third battle round, goes first, but doesn't even get to do anything because mm-hmm. in the third battle round, I have them both. Yeah, which is the same as, is it Blood and Glory in the core book? Yeah. Yeah, same deal. So realistically, it's if you control them in the second battle round, you win, not the third. Mm-hmm. It feels bad. I'll give you... Yeah, it seems like 8th edition... Um, uh, blood and glory. Yeah, it's an interesting. Old man one. takes. Uh, I mean, like I the scenarios are, are more like that because you know it's all about the scenario, whereas Eighth Edition wasn't. So I'm, yeah, I don't know how valid that point is, Lockie. Oh, in terms of like it, the game can just end just like that. Exactly. Um, but I think that could catch people out. And on my first reading of the scenario, I assumed okay, you know, I only have to you know, focus on the objectives from turn three. But actually, if you do that and ignore your objective and someone takes it in turn two, in your turn three, before you get a chance to reclaim it, you just lose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, reader be warned. Uh, Total Conquest. Cousins is pissed off to the loo, so we're not going to do a stupid accent, which is good. Um, this is a funny one, and they've neatened this up in the in the new book. This is the one with the... Janky. The janky deployment, which is a hell of a lot less janky than it used to be when it was all curves and horrible still can i just throw some general shade at games workshop yep how hard is it to just provide measures for yeah put put more measurements zones? yeah like some of them the objective you try and eyeball where the hell's that objective relative to that quadrant like fuck off i mean i'm looking at the map for knife to the heart and it just says 20 inches diagonally in like give me a you know a horizontal and a vertical measurement please mm-hmm. it's a nightmare Total conquest. So it's kind of diagonal deployment. You're you're about eighteen inches apart, which seems to be the standard. Um, some mathematician could tell me if the corners of the squares are, are closer than eighteen. I'm not really sure. But um, in this one, we've got four objectives, so they're they're spaced evenly around the battlefield. Now, I like this scenario. I think it it it's a pretty simple one. It changes the, the deployment a little bit in that some some big units can't deploy out on one one flank, but You've got to contest the whole board. Thoughts? So, like, the, the weird stepped deployment zone mm-hmm. is kind of annoying to measure out. And so, when I was coming here, my initial thinking was like... It's, it's almost like you weren't here for that discussion I, I, we I just de- had. I definitely wasn't. Was the follow-up that, like, this is, like, annoying, but also is the good version from a gameplay perspective of diagonal because you get the kind of... Uh, sort of shape of the diagonal deployment zone, but you don't have the thing where the total width of the board is kind of compressed. Yeah, and the point I was making is that... You didn't say that? Yeah. So I fucking contributed despite not being in the room? Maybe. Booyah! Go on. You're a a mess tonight. I mean, I've been at like a multiple 30th today, day drinking all day, so I do what I want. With the hot takes. Do we like this for tournaments? This is a cool one. Um, Another thing just to note for this is that 
sometimes you actually want to cede the turn to your opponent, let them hold objectives so you can take them off them because you get a bonus point if you take an objective off someone that had it in the previous, um, the previous round. Yeah, but I think if you keep it for the whole round, the, the net is the same. So them getting one versus you getting two is the same as you just having one for the entire round. From the looks of things, you gain more points if you if there's like an ebb back and forth. So I yeah. capture it off you, then you capture it off me. That you, kind of inflates the you, total points. You, get, you gain more points, but the actual difference in the points stays the same. It, only if you capture it back. That's what I'm saying. But like, if I hold it for a full battle round versus giving it to you and then taking it back, the difference is still plus one to me. No, it, so it's, it's it, except objective, it, the player gained control of that turn that was previously controlled by their opponent. So it doesn't, it doesn't say when. So say, for instance, I give you first turn yeah. and you hold the one close to you. You score one point. Yeah. I go and take it from you and I score two. So yeah. we're at the end of turn, battle round one. I've scored two, you've scored one. I then hold it for the rest of the game. Yep. So I'm up on you by one point for that objective. Exactly. But if you go first and you hold it and you hold it for the rest of the game. Oh, yeah, of course. You're up by one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, 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 had I, the typic- same. I typically table my opponent turn three, so it's not an issue. <laughs> And I, but I did think the same thing. I'm like, oh, I see them the objective, then I take it. But it actually doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, I, I kind of like these mechanics and there's a couple of them as we go throughout these that reward or improve the amount of points you get based on how long you've held an objective or the fact that you've taken it back from someone. I think those kind of things are kind of cool and uh, maybe depending on how they're executed, add like some good incentives for, as you say, like which whether or not you decide to take first turn or allowing people a chance to come back in games where they're behind. Yeah, and we'll get to that later. And, uh, but what you're sort of saying there is, is what influences my kind of favourite scenario, which, which comes up a bit, later, a bit later. Duality of death. This one's a bit controversial, I think. Yes, because two focal points of incredible power lie close to each other. Each place will grant a hero or monstrous beast that stands upon its incredible power and everlasting life. Okay, so we've got... enemies that wish to stop the cool accents of their cohort. <laughs> Go on. So Cousins is muted um, I think this is controversial Duality of death I've heard people not liking it A heap Am I wrong? I've heard of people not liking it I think you're on mute I don't think anyone can hear you I dislike it I'm not a massive fan So for me it's the fact that You can kind of just Some heroes are so impossible to kill you can just plant your Nagash on one, chuck your Necromancer on the other in the first turn, and then your opponent just cannot win unless they can kill Nagash, which some armies just can't do. So that's that's kind of my my issue with it. But that does open you up to, you know, if you do it against an army that can kill Nagash, they just you've kind of just flopped it out there and your opponent can just, you know, do what they want. So when we say kill Nagash, what we actually mean is kill the sixty Reapers that are surrounding Nagash that he's able to regenerate and bring back. So the, the challenge with this is how much chaff and how many screens your opponent has so that you can't actually even get to the hero. Because I think most armies are equipped to, to deal with a monster or to deal with a hero that's holding an, an objective, but it's getting through the swarm of stuff in between that's the issue. Yeah, and yeah, and that's my issue, is that if you can just put one hero on it for mm-hmm. one turn before your opponent gets to do anything and then just sit on the other one for the entire game. It's just a guaranteed win. So it makes that first turn a little bit too important for my liking. I I think uh, this is probably more of a thing for the three artifacts of power scenario, which we'll talk about later on. But I kind of like the idea of 
privileging different kinds of units mm-hmm. in terms of objective capturing. Yep. I just like hero or behemoth is kind of a maybe in terms of whether or not that's something we want to privilege for objective capturing. Um, I think that when we're talking about stuff like Nagash or a flying Stonehorn or Marathi, these kind of things are already fucking good and making them also great at capturing objectives in a particular mission is not something we need to like double down on how good they are. Yep. Um, if you're looking to try to do uh, like, or to try to broaden the spread of things that are good in the game, uh, that something like making only battle line able to capture or privileging, Infantry units that aren't battle line or something mm-hmm. um, might be a way, like might be a better direction to go. That said, yeah, it, it's basically whether or not you want to privilege particular things in terms of capturing and which things you want to privilege. I'm not sure that heroes or behemoths or wizards or units with items are the best ways to do that, mm-hmm. but I like the. I like the underlying theory behind it, even if the execution might not be privileging the units that I think are the right ones. And this goes to a point that I made well earlier, and that was that sometimes shout out to myself. Yeah. Sometimes Games Workshop make systems changes without recognizing the impact of those changes. So this scenario was designed prior to the Grith Feather Charm, the Doppelganger Cloak, the Ethereal um, yeah. Amulet. Those things actually existing. So the Big characters now um, can be constructed in such a way that they're incredibly difficult. In a world where behemoths aren't particularly attractive, uh, like army choices anyway, Mm -hmm. a scenario like this is actually probably a net benefit where you're saying, like, take these things that you might not otherwise take because they're actually pretty good here. Um, Yeah, and realm items and especially those on behemoth heroes, yeah, maybe pushes back against that. Yeah, and it's going to jump to a point that I was going to make at the end, but... I think it's, shout out to yourself. Yeah, shout out to my future self. And for something for TOs to consider is, I think it's about balance and pick your scenarios for your for your event and think about which ones have a, have a, a kind of even spread. You know, we've we've talked about knife to the heart, which we think is is better for straight up killy armies that are going to just roll over the opposition. We've talked about this one, which is better for your characters, your big characters. And then there's something like scorched earth, which is is a really strong scenario for you know mobile quick kind of object objective grabbing and tagging armies so they're all kind of geared to a different you know styles of army so i think having a mix for a tournament is really important so uh speaking of scorched earth the next one is battle for the past battle for the past now i don't like this scenario i just straight up don't um maybe it's because it's it's annoying to play lengthways maybe it's because it just makes for these kind of boring grind fests in the middle of the board. I don't know. I just, I don't particularly like Battle for the Past. I, I think in terms of being like awkward to mechanically execute, playing long ways down a table, especially when tables are like next to each other, that's definitely a concern. I don't know if it's just a grind fest in the middle though. You've got four objectives that are reasonably spaced apart and you're rewarded significantly for getting to the ones that are, the further away they are, you get more points. And so, like, to me, that says like, something along the lines of what I want to see from uh, battle plans, which is requiring your army to be able to fight over a large space of the board. Um, whether or not, yeah, like, the awkwardness of doing it in this fashion makes up for it, yeah, not necessarily. But I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite as down on it as you are. So this is the first time we've seen the variable scoring, and I really like that the... The objective in your opponent's deployment zone is worth 
four points. I mean, is that, that because you want to push your daughters of Kane army across the table, regardless of what your opponent's doing? I want to teleport onto their back line yeah. and then run up their rear. I agree, though. I do like the variable scoring because it it sort of emphasizes focus points in different parts of the battlefield. But I just find, particularly with Age of Sigma, where you can have these massive units that can be strung out so wide that they can quite easily you know, stretch from one objective to another and you can just kind of push them forward down the middle, say if you had 20, 20 snakes or something like that. I just find it, yeah, a little bit kind of boring, push forward, grind festy kind of game. So, I mean, but that's my personal preference. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, maybe it's the sort of thing where you need the objectives to be slightly more spaced out than they are to get the kind of game that you're looking for. But... Yeah, if we're talking about not units of 20 snakes, but units of like five evocators, then maybe that kind of dynamic gets uh, avoided to some extent. Shout out to units of five evocators. What the fuck are people thinking when... So good. 200 points for that shit? What about units of 10? Are they... Or is it units of five that you want? I I mean, I'm not quite convinced that one unit of 10 is better than two units of five, but let's just talk about raw numbers. 20 is better than 10. I don't know. I'll, I'll debate that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just not that many points. 200? 15 wounds. It's yeah. Pretty good. And they're wizards. I mean, we're really on the cutting edge of the forefront of fucking what's good and what's not here. Yeah. Turns out those Stormcast things in the starter pack are pretty good. Hey, maybe Nagash is something we should talk about more. Maybe that's quite good. I need to buy Nagash. I just started playing Daughters of Cain and I reckon <laughs> <laughs> I reckon there's something there. Those, it's because it's true. Hey, those hags are pretty economical, aren't they? Uh, the Slaughter Queen, yeah. On the, on the cauldron, yeah. Yeah, she shout out that. to all this, the uh, like metagame stats from the Honest Wargamer. Turns out Daughters of Cain are actually really, really good. Especially when everyone plays them. Well, only in Victoria. And Sydney and the UK. But not Japan, as it turns out. Not Japan, okay. Yeah. Hot take from the egg. Uh, no, no, it's fucking statistics, bro. Stats. Can't argue with those. Statistics or anecdote? Both. Okay. Statistics are anecdotes. Anec- there is no an- truth. Anecdotal. Philosophy degree right here. Anecdotal statistics. Um, so Battle for the Past, we were kind of undecided on, but it's maybe, a, like some of the things in it are good. It's a personal taste one. I, I really like Battle for the Past, but I can see the reasons Nick doesn't like it. Yeah, I think the mechanical difficulties for me are definitely a fa- uh, like a thing against it, and the kind of slog fest in the middle is maybe not the battle plan's fault in this case, but potentially the kind of armies that people are taking or like small degrees of separation on the objectives. I think it's going to affect list building um, to a degree, and I think that's a good thing. To, to some extent, I, I, when we're talking about affecting list building, I think a lot of these, it's, and we're kind of coming to some of the more lopsided ones later on, being able to teleport units or summon new units is really fucking good for objective capturing. And those, the scenarios that are advantaging those kind of armies become like more and more obvious as we go through. Yeah, I can see your fucking cheese eating green there, Lucky. I'm going to teleport 10 Doomfire Warlocks onto this objective. <laughs> I'm so tactical. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, I didn't know if you guys had thought of it yet, but that's what I plan to do. <laughs> next next level stuff from Mosque. So, Lockie, you noob. Um, the one that wizards score on, you need to move, not set up. So I teleport, you won't score. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, t- we'll people, talk about yeah, that when we get to no, it. No, no, we, we 
should have talked about that when we talked about um, oh, is, it the same, is it the same for duality? Yeah, setups oh. do not count. Now, I learned this in my first stage of Sigma tournament <laughs> and when I teleported a Bastilladon onto objective and found out that that didn't count. And then the same thing happened to an opponent at um, the Good Games event. So... I, I think I be, managed be to, I, by not playing round three of that event, I managed to avoid that entirely. So I still haven't learned. So yeah. is that just for that scenario or is it just in, in a, general? A, a setup is not considered to be a, a type of move. So the ones that have <laughs> characters, so the one that is the artifact of power or the um, wizard and the one that we just spoke about, duality, they say have moved within so you just got to look for the language yeah, controls right. an objective of a hero or behemoth from their armies within three inches of the objective at the end of any move uh, type of move yeah so but you can charge teleport near it and then charge yeah alright so Get scorched earth nah star strike what I didn't you send, what? I, didn't, I didn't send you star strike oh, you, no you did you just sent it in the wrong order okay sorry I like so. uh, star strike's a bit different talk to me about star strike Lockie uh, well, Star Strike is uh, a pretty sweet scenario, actually. So there's uh, three. <laughs> no, seriously, there's three layers of um, of objectives. So you got your middle objective, you got your um, other two objectives, um, and they come on in different places. Isn't that right? So, what what I really like variable about like <laughs> objective placement based on a dice roll yeah, in the second, and then subsequently the third turn. Your thoughts, Dan? Well, I'll, my thoughts will be shared in an anecdote. <laughs> the the only way... We, the, I the, played the, a game the, the of Star Strike on the weekend um, against an absolute legend of a bloke, Chris Welfare. So shout out to Chris if he's listening. And of the... Mortally Wounded podcast. There we go. Also shout out to myself, Sam Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was a salty motherfucker when I played him. So both shout out and apologies. Um, regrettably, the Mighty Magpies had just lost the grand final as we were playing, which is... Uh, Anyway, um, that's the ta- that's an unnecessary tangent. Yeah, for, for any of our non-Australian oh, and in non-Victorian. fact non-Victorian <laughs> or maybe South Australian listeners, uh, we're talking about Australian rules football, and you can watch that on YouTube and go whoa if you like. So I was playing against Chris. He's running a Dreadwood, which is a list that has the potential to Alpha Strike. Um, when you're playing against an Alpha Strike, what's an Alpha Strike? Sam? Alpha Strike is something that can reach out and do really significant damage to your army. Early on in the game. Like so a gun line? Alpha being, alpha being like A, number one, first in the alphabet to begin with. And um, I, 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 this, <laughs> so the alpha strike, nominally the idea is you don't have a turn. This person is a one, two or three drop. Um, in Chris's case, he was a four drop versus my 12. Means he gets to dictate who goes first. His list, the Dreadwood, has some mechanics which enable him to redeploy a unit to with it just outside of six inches and also to move up to three units before the game begins. So what that means is he could actually, prior to me going, delete quite a significant portion of my army, delete enough of my army um, to stop me from winning before I've had a turn. So when you're playing against an Alpha Strike, what you typically want to do um, is create a wall of chaff, or even it doesn't need to necessarily be something cheap. You want to create some sort of screen that protects the rest of your army, um, and you're just conceding that unit, saying, that's fine, you can kill my string of 20 witches, now, when you're setting up like a, a castle, when you're trying to deploy defensively, typically what you want to do is what's called a refuse flank. So you put most of your stuff on one side of the board so that they can't swing around and, and get behind your screen, essentially. That's, what you, that's, yeah. that's, that's the theory, right? So I set up in that style in Star Strike. Turn three happens. 
Chris hasn't alphaed me because I'm set up defensively and it, it's his prerogative to set Woods and, um, and sort of play a, a cagey game. The objectives all drop on the opposite side to where I am and I simply can't get to them by turn five and I lose. So, like, the learning there is in this scenario, you actually need to think about board control and being able to get to the centre of the board so that when those stars do drop you can get to them regardless of where they fall. Is the flip side of that, that if they'd fallen on your side, you would have won and Chris wouldn't have been able to? No, because of the way that his list functions. Um, he So this it got to a point when we we're rolling for those and I thought, if these fall on my side, I can win. If they fall on his side, he will win. Yep. So he outplayed me. Like He beat me because he outplayed me. And one of the reasons he outplayed me is because I deployed poorly. Can't mm-hmm. you um, deep strike with your stuff though? No, because he can zone out. Right. So the, the whole idea of the alpha is that it can come at you and get to you, but equally it can just fan. So he fanned. He, he spread stuff out across the board, creates nine-inch zones where I can't fit, which is similar to what you did when we played, but I smashed you. So it's like when people talk about alpha strike lists, a lot of the time it sounds like they just mean lists that charge on turn one and like that seems really one-dimensional. And where it gets actually quite interesting is where it's more, not so much lists that charge on turn one, but lists that can charge on turn one, but can also control things so that they get to determine the terms of engagement regardless of whether it's turn one or turn four. And from the sounds of things, Chris was kind of doing that to you. Yeah, he's excellent. I mean, and the thing with that particular list is prior to me going, there's like seven Wildwoods on the board. Each of the Wildwoods has a unit of Sprite Revenants. If I get close to them, they do Mortal Wounds and debuff my bravery, and I can't teleport just because of the, the placement or, and displacement of those. I think the, the theory behind the scenario is really good. It, it makes you need to control the board, and that's the kind of game I like to play. I like playing you know, relatively fast armies with board control elements to them. My, my one kind of question about it is you're going to just occasionally have these games where someone turtles up because they just know they can't control the board and then they're just going to happen to roll all those scenarios, mm-hmm. all those um, objectives are going to come down in their corner and it's going to be real, real bad for the person who's kind of gone, oh, I've controlled four, you know, four, six of the board or whatever. And yeah, my opponent just kind of got yeah, a bit through, lucky. But through you know, no that's poor gonna... play or fault of my own, I've lost. That's, that's like leaves a bad taste. It can know. leave a bad taste, but I do, I really I, like is the Is it through no poor play if you've set up so that you can't control, like you know that they could land wherever and then you've decided to control only some of them? Like maybe you've even controlled more than half of the possible drop zones, but is that through no fault of your own or should you have been trying to be able to make a play on any of them? Now, so what I'm suggesting here is that people only control one of the possible landing zones yeah because and and seed literally the other five or the other you know the yeah. other three to the to the opponent and then just kind of get that one in three three times in a row you know it, it can happen it will happen you know is it a major issue no and i like the theory behind the scenario um, and I definitely think it should be included. But yeah, it's going to occasionally, you're just going to have games where, oh, they all landed where my opponent just happened to be. So the general criticism leveled at this one is that you score based on the round. So in rounds four and five, you can score 27 points, which means that often people's tactic in this will be try and table the opponent before rounds four and five. And even if they've controlled the objectives for the rest of the game, they can't win. So... If you're if you're letting your opponent table you, maybe you didn't deserve to win. So <laughs> if you go, no, that's a, that's a really good point. So, but if you go, if you play aggressively to get the objective, yeah, then you may be putting units out in a position that you typically wouldn't have. Like, I did, y- well, maybe yeah. don't do that in this scenario. Yeah, right? if you know that turn four and five is where the action's at, mm-hmm. and you commit on turn two or turn three. Mm-hmm. 
then maybe you've kind of fucked up and you should have been playing for the turn four and turn five objective capturing instead. Yeah, I don't think it's a good or bad thing. I just think it's a it's an, a thing you need to think about with scenario. Okay. It's, it's also it, a different thing. Like some of the other scenarios, you can control the game. For, you know, you can throw away your army for three turns just to hold the objectives, get three turns worth of scoring and then get tabled and it doesn't matter And this because you still won and this scenario flips it the other way around. For example, like I was just listening to Nathan from The Honest Wargamer talk extensively about getting his Iron Jaws army wiped out but having scored just enough on objectives for it to not matter. And then this is a scenario which flips that around and says that actually not getting wiped out is important and you need to control the game at the end. I mean, that was basically the story of my first Bendigo tournament when I was playing the Lizards, which I was spent most of the tournament winning games with Skinks while my, you know, really poorly constructed Lizardman army was just taken off the board by far better armies. And this was one of my most difficult scenarios because I couldn't just leverage the skinks as much as I would have in another game because if I put them out there on turns one and two and three, they're just going to die and I'm not going to score enough to, to make up for losing the the points in turns four and five. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Playing against your fucking Seraphon has made me take Skinks as allies in every Stormcast army I've taken so far because... I love Skinks. Holy shit, they're good at capturing objectives. I've thought about buying a box or two. <laughs> just allied to the daughters. <laughs> I'm going to summon so many Skinks. Well, can't you just do that with... Uh, what is it? Canaries, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Skinks are cheaper. I, uh, skinks are cheaper and have skinks more bodies. Aren't but an ally they also daughters of Cain. They also oh, can't. No. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> they also can't deep strike in turn five. I'll buy your box of skinks off you. <laughs> Scorched Earth. Six objectives, one in each kind of, you know, what's a quadrant but a six, whatever that is. Wouldn't it be nice if this was measured out? Yeah, wouldn't it just? It's roughly in the middle. It's in the middle of your realm of battle plate, obviously. 12 by 12. 12 in, 12 in. Six objectives, and you can you can sack or raise the other person's objectives in this one. Interestingly, and they've changed it, is you can't do it in the first battle round anymore, which is a huge change to previously. So famously or infamously, under the previous General's Handbook, there was a bill called the Murder Host, and uh, it was a one-drop, or perhaps it was a two-drop if they took a banner, which they should. It's a two-drop. They go first that have 90 blood letters on your three objectives and they burn them all turn one and it'd be game over. And now you can't do that. And I played this with Ripodactyls and multiple times would just fly them forward, raise an objective turn one. And same thing, basically. You've just won the game. I like this because it lets you, or it makes you have to decide, am I going to sit on it and try and keep it? Or am I going to raise it and deny it and then fly off or move off somewhere else? Or do I send in a unit that's just going to raise it quickly and then die versus putting in a proper unit that's just going to sit on my opponent's one? I really like it. What I especially like about this scenario is that sometimes battles are fought not to destroy the enemy, but to seize their resources and carry them off. Raiding parties will strike into enemy territory, capturing an objective and... And searching for any hidden treasures before raising rotten maids to the ground to deny them to the enemy. I can't, so, I can't figure out the accent. It, it's, it's Aussie. Uh, it's, it's Aussie, mate. Like, it starts off, it's, I think it's, it's meant to be Stallone and then it's meant to be Arnie and then it goes a bit Scottish in the it, middle. It was, in, it was entirely a bad John Schwarzenegger. Uh, yeah, the Stallone accent I can try next time if you'd like. Um, so um, when we talk, think about this in terms of a scenario uh, for an event, 
is fine, but I think it's inferior to the other raise objective scenario we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, the, the biggest problem, if we're just comparing this with... Better part of Valor. Uh, the, the main uh, like issue, I guess, with this one is in terms of how the victory points are actually calculated. Getting D3 when you raise an objective uh. can be like yep. pretty swingy. Whereas in better part of Valor, you have a set amount based on how long you've controlled an objective, mm-hmm. which to me is just like a nicer, neater, more elegant way to to score the objective. Hey, because you can burn your own, it's cagier as well, but mm-hmm. we'll get to that shortly. But it gives it some sort of um, risk kind of reward, right? So it's like, do you, do you think I can hold it for the next turn or not? Um, and it's I, like I, I think I kind of like that more in better part of Valor though, where you can say, I've held this for two turns. Maybe my opponent's going to take this off me for one point, but if I can hold it for one more turn, that's like three more points. And those kind of calculations, I think, are more interesting in that mission. But like, I, at the very least, the idea of being able to destroy objectives um, and move on to other ones, I think, is pretty cool. And that this is one of like uh, one of the kind of scoring mechanics that is mm-hmm. really interesting to me. So yeah. I like better part of Valor because it plays to my need for certainty. And the variable, the D3, just... I loathe the D3. Yeah, I'm not big on the D3. I have, have lost a, a game for that. I think if it was two, I would prefer it, but I don't, I don't mind it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that there's also better part of Valor, are many tournaments going to play both? Who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a sort of thing, especially when we see kind of analogues of similar scenarios with duality and mm-hmm. three artifacts of power and Scorched Earth or Better Part of Valor. Relocating Orb, you can throw into that same characters being really important. Yeah, Um, and and when you have sort of analogs, my guess is that a lot of tournaments will choose one of the kind of similar scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then like, if we're choosing between Scorched Earth and Better Part of Valor, I think our general consensus is that you should pick Better Part of Valor, but maybe you pick both because you think that this is a cool kind of way of scoring objectives and having two similar but slightly different versions is better than having some of the less ideal uh, battle plans in your tournament. All right, next up is total commitment. So four objectives, pretty widely split. So 12 and 12 on from each edge. I don't mind this one. It's it's pretty simple. It's just uh, your opponent's objectives are worth three, yours are worth one. Um, there's something this is you're missing the biggest part of this scenario the reason that I think specifically the reason that this is in so many packs is because of the no reserves rule so in this battle all units must be set up on the battlefield in this battle all units must be any unit set up as reserve any unit set up as a reserve is destroyed and all of the models in the unit are slain. So this one led to the, the Prime's War Scroll being changed quick smart because yeah. he used to have to set up in the sky, but now it's optional. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good change given that otherwise... It would have been awesome. <laughs> otherwise, no one would ever take the Prime to a tournament because you might get faced with this scenario and lose it before the game begins. No big loss. I like this scenario for that aspect mm-hmm. that I'd forgotten about. I think that this is the worst scenario, the worst battle plan out of literally all of them for exactly that aspect. Me too. Canaries are no good in this in this scenario. So are you saying that as a biased Stormcast player, are you saying that as legitimately your view regardless of what faction you're playing? Uh, so so th- there, there are two answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, one to your first question and one to your second question. Yeah. Uh, luckily for me, the answers are both the same. So like, 
out of all of the battle plans in all of the things, there is one that says you don't get an allegiance ability, and it says to, that to one army, and it says it to me. So fuck you. Uh, like if you play a stormcast army, you just don't have an allegiance ability it's, for this is night haunts allegiance like ability as well. The same allegiance ability. Yeah, I, I, f- I think that night haunts don't leverage it as much because they like, don't have Gavriel Shawheart. Like yes, but even without Gavriel, night haunts have the fucking plus two movement item or whatever the fuck that is. Give that to Stormhearts, uh, Stormcasts, and you and I, I'll happily play with this scenario because I'll just take that bent as fuck item every game. I mean, you've got Heraldors, which is effectively the same thing. So if we look at accomplished Stormcast players like Adam Burt, he's putting a Night Vexler in his list specifically for if he comes up against this scenario. Yeah, I mean, if you play Gavriel, you just take a Lord Relictor and a Night Vexilor, and the turn that you roll a 3-plus on your Relictor, and then you teleport a unit with your Vexilor, and you've basically just done your Gavriel Shawheart shit anyway. You don't, like, the Gavriel thing is not actually what I'm, like, particularly concerned with here. I think Gavriel's like obviously bent, but also is not the only way to play Stormcast. It's just like we have this scenario, one scenario that says total commitment, and so Stormcast and Nighthorn as well, but they get bullshit movement anyway. But like we have this one scenario that says you don't get reserves, but you still get teleports, you still get summoning. What the fuck? Like you're totally committed, but you can summon your unit of 30 blade gust revenants back with Nagash every fucking turn because that's not totally committed. But my unit of five sequitors is like this scenario doesn't make sense. It's bullshit. And if it made any sense, it would say the only units, the only models you can play with are those that are set up in the deployment phase. Fuck off your summoning, fuck off your deep strike, fuck off your teleports, and now we have a legitimate scenario. As it is, it only affects me specifically as a human being, and you can all get <laughs> fucked. But like the, the, the serious version is that like the fact that this that was the serious version. Don't the fact go on. Yeah, like the, the fact that this doesn't affect summoning and it doesn't affect teleporting. It only affects like reserve stuff. I, mm-hmm. I don't like, and I would much prefer it. So if you're it, saying there's a design flaw. Like I, I like the idea of uh, reducing the amount of stupid movement bullshit that goes on because there's a fuck ton of that in the game. But the fact that it only affects a small like subsect of it, Your and army. the fact that it's my subsection of it, is especially galling. Like you know, I, I play against the Nagash army, and I'm like, cool. I don't get to deep strike my allegiance ability, but you get yours. And your army is statistically better than mine. Nagash can put stuff in the graveside as well. Uh, yeah, but it can still summon shit back after I kill it. Like, don't kill it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so, so like, I like the idea of fucking with the stupid movement bullshit. Mm-hmm. I just don't like that it affects only a small subsection of that. And I would prefer that it did either that this affected all of the movement bullshit or that we had other scenarios that affected the other stuff. So if we had this scenario and one where you can't summon things, I think that would be like a better way of achieving what this scenario seems to be trying to do. But also stop fucking with me. I want a deep strike. I want a Gavriel <laughs> stuff. And uh, like actually... Just speaking about Stormcast because I'm ranting and drunk. You, you are a drunk and angry and ranty motherfucker tonight, Mr. Egg. The best bit is he's been on mute for 15 minutes no, and just, none I of just, that no, was I just, recorded. I just muted I've been keeping a close eye on the dial. When Nick says he's muted me, it's not always the case. But like, <laughs> just taking the Stormcast book, right? Like, now I've muted him with the button. That button? That button. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things I've been thinking about with Stormcast is the Soul Strike Brotherhood, mm-hmm. which is a battalion that only has like 
an actual effect beyond the generic battalion things if you deep strike from reserve. Yep. And I, I've been thinking about ways of combating something like Nagash. This battalion lets you, like, castigators shoot twice. It lets you reliably drop down and kill something fucked up like Nagash. But if you're playing a tournament with total commitment, you can't take that... Like, you're not going to take that battalion because... 20% of the time 20% of the time, yeah. you, you've spent a bunch of points on taking shit things that don't do anything. Um, and it's that kind of thing where... Yeah, I, I haven't poured through the other uh, battle mm-hmm. books. Battle tomes. Battle tomes. Yeah, like there might be some other stuff like that, but it's the sort of thing where you have this cool way of dealing with a big problem in the metagame, like Nagash, that total commitment rules out specifically for some things, but not for others. So yeah, like fuck off, fuck off deep striking, summoning and teleporting all at once. I'm on board. Or let me deep strike and one shot Nagash because fuck Nagash players. I mean, it begs the question, is Nagash a big problem in the metagame or is it like Deep Striking Stormcast? There was one Nagash out of 74 players at Moab. I am anticipating out of the 200 players at CanCon, I'm making the call now, 21 Nagashes, over 10%. 21 Nagashes. And I'm certainly, in terms of my list construction, I'm thinking about how do I kill Nagash? How do I kill Archaeon? How do I kill an Exalted Greater Demon? Those sort of things are relevant considerations. Chris, I think good points eloquently made. If we think about actually playing the scenario rather than ranting about it, is this a scenario where one is better off, and this is contextual, but is it better? are you better off sort of splitting your forces um, and having, you know, adequate um, both defence and offence on each of the objectives? Do you stack to one side and, and tap and go on the other? What? How do we actually play this one? Because I think the fact that the objectives are so far apart is an interesting point of difference. I think that's actually really cool. And the, the, when I've played this, at, like, the one tournament I've played this scenario at, um, like, admittedly, we forgot the no reserves clause. But the, the <laughs> <laughs> and, I, good, good. and I didn't have reserves, my opponent did. But like the, yeah, like the disparity between how far away the objectives are made this feel a lot different to the other scenarios where objectives were maybe closer and things that were capturing one objective could kind of support or threaten another and that wasn't necessarily the case here. And so like in at least that respect, I really like this kind of uh, distribution of objective kind of design, even if it fucks me. Yeah, I'll get in on the ego chamber for this one. Um, <laughs> the I ego the... chamber? That's the <laughs> <best>. <laughs> Uh, I had the same situation. My opponent and I both had all combat armies, but mine was quicker than his. And so it just gave me a great, a big advantage because I could push my uh, the objective quicker than he could. Um, I had more units, which also helped. But yeah, it's, a, it's an odd one. Do you sit back and guard them both? Do you just push up, try and take your opponents early before he can get yours? Who knows? This is Think the scenario you and I played, wasn't it, Sam, at, at the old uh, Blue Dragon? I won the Blue Dragon. What were you asking about it? This is the scenario you and I played? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is the yeah. one we played. Is this um, the game that went for one turn? Well, one turn. And uh, so maybe I'm biased, but I'm not a big fan of this scenario because that, that is something the, that can happen. For the same reason Chris doesn't like it. It's bad, <laughs> it's bad for you. <laughs> I, yeah, like, I, I think the as much as I'm like personally affronted by this scenario, I, I think the fact that there are no scenarios where something like summoning is affected is a bit of a... like Maybe that's something that could be looked at in General's Handbook 2019, for example. Um, but yeah, like having objectives far apart, and I, I said this early on, forcing armies to fight over large portions of the battlefield mm-hmm. is something that I think is quite a good thing for the game. And in every other way, fuck you. 
Ben Johnson and the rest of the design team, a message to you from the egg, Chris Sp- Cousins. Specifically Ben Johnson. I, I've realised that we've like got drunk in Cardiff together and, you know, like huddled up on the floor of the like Welsh backpackers that we were staying in at some firestorm event. How good is Cardiff? Fuck, Cardiff is a good night out. Walkabout, flares, metros with the black sun. So I I missed the whole black sun thing, but my one experience of the walkabout in Cardiff, and I've said this on the podcast before, go back to like episode seven, involved Shane, the captain of the Northern Ireland uh, ETC team, trying to punt his pint of cider back into the venue after we'd been kicked out. And no one giving a shit about it. And the bouncers just laughing at him as he fell over and skidded through on his ass back into the into the venue. Also, Cardiff is just nothing but like wall-to-wall hens nights and bucks nights. It's a fucking mess. And Warhammer events. Well, obviously, but that's better than both combined. Shout out to our good friends of the podcast, Mo Ashraf as well. Mo. King of Cardiff and also creator of scenarios for AOS. We, we owe this man a debt of gratitude. He, he also created like a, an independent tournament pack mm-hmm. that was a standard for a lot of tournaments, which we kind of talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I feel like he also created a big like, uh, push towards going to the strippers at the ETC that he time. Also licked, he also licked my ear when I got a strike at bowling. So. <laughs> he, he, might, he may have paid for a lap dance. For one of my lap dances in a... <laughs> As in he paid for you to give him a lap dance? He paid Athens. No, no, no. I'm unclear on what in this a, scenario. He's a lovely guy. Is he the receiver or the giver? No, he paid. He, he was a, it was like a Christmas present. So it turns out that Mo is actually the best thing about Warhammer over the last 20 years. Yes. He was in Australia for like six months and he didn't come down to Melbourne. He texted me and I never wrote back. So, so, so it's your fault. Shout out to Mo. <laughs> shout Standard out to behavior Mo. though from you, right? Like just don't get back to people. All right, we said we weren't going to just spend 30 minutes on each scenario, but we lied. No, especially because of this scenario, because it fucks with me. All right, focal points. It's really good. Move on. This is an awesome scenario. It should be in every pack. It's really cool. I really like this one. Yep. Differential scoring, which we talked about earlier. Multiple objectives spread out across the table, which we talked about earlier. Have I forgotten anything? Um, Diagonal deployment, I'm less keen on, but Salabi. I don't mind it. It's just a good kind of all-round scenario. And it, it favors it doesn't really favor a particular army. Like if you've got lots of smaller, quicker units, you can kind of go around the outside to grab things. If you've got a a um a slower, kind of more grindy army, you can push straight through the middle and try and grab those objectives. So I think it makes for really interesting dynamic games. Yeah, you can choose to fight over five objectives, you can choose to fight over three or four objectives, um, and those kind of decisions are relevantly weighted in the points. And it makes stuff happen because you've kind of it, you don't have situations where two armies just sit off each other holding the objectives because there's that one objective in the middle that just kind of encourages people to fight. Yeah, like the last time I played this at a tournament, um, the, the central objective was not actually the kind of deciding factor and things were kind of more leveraged around being able to control two of the outer objectives. Mm-hmm. But I can easily envision other games where people just deploy very defensively around the two objectives in the deployment zone and the central objective is the point of contention. And that kind of variety within one battle plan I think is really cool and this is a credit to the game designers and Ben Johnson I realise I just you know was like giving you trash but this is this is fantastic more scenarios like this please also more drunken nights in Cardiff hostels I think this scenario is good as well it's dynamic it allows for some feints as well you can kind of 
um, you know, stack a flank mm-hmm. or you can kind of go in a different direction. And then teleport 10 Doom Fire Warlocks onto the other objective, you fucking daughters of Cain, bitch. And, do, and uh, Doom Bolt uh, someone off. Yeah, great. Love it. All right. The one we've talked about earlier and I think a favourite for, for most of us here, particularly, I, I really yeah, like Yeah, it's this, my favourite in the the better part of Valor. Now, I love this scenario. So it's the six objectives spread out, 12 and 12. Um, it's, you know, same setup to... Um, Whatever the other one's called. Scorched Earth. Scorched Earth. So this is really the better part of Scorched Earth. The better part of Scorched Earth. So the scoring for this is really interesting. So at the end of each of their turns, a player can choose to destroy one or more of the objectives they control. So that's any of the six, providing you control it, in order to score the following victory points. If a player can gain control of the objectives in this turn, they score one victory point. If the player controlled the objective at the end of their last turn and has not lost control of it since they score two points. And, and if the player gained control of the objective in the first battle rounds and has not lost control of it by the end of their turn in the fifth battle round, they score eight victory points. We skipped four. Oh, sorry. I, I totally zoned out there. Got a bit excited? I, I was basically tunneling on doing the accent again one last time before you kick me off and I'm never invited back on the show. It's a thing that's going to happen. Um, so, yeah. I really like this because you you know what you're scoring. You've got to think about how long do I hold these objectives before I think I'm going to lose it? Do I take that risk to score it for an extra turn? Do I think I can hold it? I just think it, it makes you think about how you need to play the game. It makes you it gives you good, you know positive in-game choices to make. Uh, it makes you it you know it just the opportunities for kind of tactical play in this scenario are really high and so I really like it. So when this book first dropped, there was a big event in the UK. Um, one of the top tables, two guys are playing off. The first player burns five objectives turn one and then the second player has to hold on right till the end of the game. And it turned out like the last roll of the dice determined whether he was going to score the eight points or not to win. And I just think that's fucking awesome. Yeah, like, fantastic. That, that translates as a story. I've watched it. It's just like, that's so cool. Um, and to me, that, that sort of illustrates what I like about this scenario. Yeah, the, the times I've played this scenario, my opponent and I have both had to think a lot about mm-hmm. what we want to do in the game, where we're going to push a section, hold a section, that kind of thing, when to burn the objectives. And I just it just made for interesting, it made for close games, although apparently some of the games have, have not been as close as my ones. But I think if you think about the way you're going to play this beforehand, which you really need to do, it can make for some super, super interesting games. Uh, the next one's shifting objectives. Sam, this one's I've, lame. I've played this once. I didn't like it. Yeah, this one sucks. So, shifting objectives is another one where you're deploying on the short board edge. Um, so similar to battle for the pass, the objectives um, are set up in the very centre of the board. So you've got them in a line there, six inches from the board edge. 24 so in the middle and then six inches from the other board edge and each turn or each battle round rather the objective that is the primary objective moves and that one is worth more points uh, i really dislike this scenario why why you guys uh i i dislike this one for the the reason that we were discussing with starstruck whether it's the potential um for the person controlling two of the objectives to score two points, person who's controlling one to score three, and I think that's problematic. I also dislike it because what it does um, is it generates a melee in the middle of the board, and from sort of my experience, my observation of this scenario, P- 
people huddle in and they fight, which is one of the general criticisms of Age of Sigma was when it first dropped, everyone just runs to the middle and fights, and that's really lame. So, so setting aside the melee in the middle thing, I think this is better than the Star Strike scenario in terms of the, like the problem of like some people potentially get a benefit here in that you're scoring from turn one, so you have mm-hmm. more turns of it, and you don't have the same kind of disparity in scores. So if what you want is a setup where you have a kind of concentrated set of objectives, some are worth more than others, uh, so you're incentivized to have control of all of them if you can or move on yep. to some of them, Like I think this is a better version of that kind of outlook of things. The battle for the past deployment reduces the width of the battlefield. I don't love that. And, yeah, like, as you say, there are problems with things that promote just globbing into the middle of the battlefield. But this is maybe, at least in my opinion, this is maybe one of the lesser of the evils of those kind of, uh, like, styles of battle plan. Yeah, I think it's less swingy than uh, Starstruck, but, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not a fan for similar reasons to what Sam said. But the thing is, though, like, (laughs) if you control two and your opponent controls one... Yeah, they might get more points in one round, but you're going to get way more points on average. That's over what I'm the saying. Like it's, it's less swingy because it's yeah. not like oh they're there and they're going to stay there. It's that they'll probably it'll probably come back. But I'd, yeah, yeah, for the same reason Sam mentioned, I don't particularly like it because of the the the, long, the short edges and stuff. I, I I don't love it for the reason of like yeah like randomly deciding which one is the most important. But at the same time, I feel like this is this is not too far away from being like. Just the sense, you know, like one of them is worth like whatever and you just play the game around it. Um, yeah, I, I have way less problems with the randomness of this than with the other ones we've talked about. Places of arcane power. So we've got two left. This is basically uh, duality of death but diagonally deployed. And there's a slight change. It's behemoths can't, uh, or non-character behemoths can't claim. It's got to be a friendly hero with an artifact of power or a friendly wizard major implications for army list construction. Correct. Like, you've got to take this into account. I think it's good that they put this one in because Evocators really needed a boost and, and this War- gets this squeezes them into War- the list. Warlocks needed a boost. Warlocks are really good. I, I think the, the other, like, hidden benefit here is that something like taking a battalion to get an extra artifact of power mm-hmm. otherwise wouldn't be all that important, but thanks to this scenario, it becomes something we actually might want to do. And so sometimes instead of taking a one-drop army... Uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Instead of taking the one-drop army that you were going to take anyway, you'll take a one-drop army because it becomes even better in this kind of scenario because battalions with the extra artifact are super important. Did my sarcasm come across? Probably not, but that's because you're drunk. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't... I've played this scenario once and I my army wasn't geared to it because I was just playing a kind of test army. So, yeah, I don't know about this one. Sam? So I played this one on the weekend and I played against a chap called Dan Brewer and Dan had, an, in my mind, an unkillable um, Tomb King on Exalted Chariot. As it turns out, it was... It was very cool. I didn't kill it during the <laughs> game, but <laughs> just the math in my mind versus the reality. I, I misplayed, I miscalculated, and misplayed the game. Um, but what he did was he moved his Tomb King up onto the center objective, um, and then he supported that Tomb King with both um, really efficiently pointed and effective um, Tomb King snakes and chaff. So it meant that I couldn't actually get to him, and if I 
committed to that objective, he was able to kill anything I sent that way. Um, this is dispossessed Dan. No, this is a, this is a different different Dan. How many, how, and, and more then, more then, than one Dan in New South Wales, as it turns out. Yeah, and there's also like Davids who are really good at the game too. I've not met any Davids, um, but I'll I'll take your word. David Kerr, I uh, hear he's Dave, quite good. David Kerr uh, apparently yeah. is quite good. Yeah, it's the alliteration. In, Dan's and Dave's. Like this is a tangent. Thank fuck! I've been waiting for one of those. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had any. Of them. My my power rankings my power rankings remain Adam Burt number one, like by some margin. You say that. Shout yeah. out! Shout out to myself, Sam Morgan. No, Nick Owen number two, and then <laughs> and then no, legitimately that's that's my tiering, and then there's a drop off, and there's about a heap of guys you could throw a blanket over who are all really good, and I put Dan in that. that so it's really players. just Adam Burt who's won CanCon and Nick Owen who hasn't yet. I've won CanCon. <laughs> different different game system, really. Yeah, Kings of War. <laughs> like I said, different yeah. game system. Yeah, but fair. That's that's my only claim to it as well. Um, anyway, the yeah. the point is, um, this is another one where being able to set up, um, being able to set up zones, being able um, to kill models with artifacts of power and or wizards is critically important. Yeah, for me, the issue with this this like style of battle plan is just saying these particular things are super important. Wizards, people with artifacts, and therefore like battalions that enable you to take artifacts, mm-hmm. and did I already say wizards? And and therefore things that can kill characters with artifacts. Y- yeah, so, so like wizards and characters with artifacts, which are already super duper important, and people are taking in their like power build. I'm going to kill all your shit kind of armies. Those also get this boost, where in this scenario they're the only things that score or the mm-hmm. things that score the best. Yeah, like as I was saying earlier. I like the idea of incentivizing taking different kind of things, but the things that this scenario incentivizes are the things that are already super good and the things that people already are saying are potentially problematic or that are the best kind of things you can take anyway. Wizards, battalions, you know, uh, ethereal amulet, vampire lords on zombie dragons. Like, I, I think having these kind of scenarios, making the good things better is maybe not the ideal situation, but incentivizing different kinds of things to be good and scoring more easily is a good way to balance elements mm-hmm. of the game. So maybe it's a like good idea, slight area in execution, or maybe I'm overrating how good things like wizards and artifacts are. What I like about this more than uh, duality is there's three objectives. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, yep. it's not as kind of binary. There's, you know, you can sort of seed one to your opponent and try and take two. Uh, you don't have that whole, I'm going to take one and hold the other one for the rest of the game and just take one for one turn thing that duality has. But what this kind of brings me to is that different things are going to be strong in the in the meta at different times depending on which books come out. And so you can kind of choose the scenarios you want to play or the, the battle plans or the missions. You can choose what you want to use in your in your tournament depending on what's kind of good at the time. You know, are wizards and or things like evocators and warlocks and stuff like that you know, running amok in the meta and absolutely, tr- you know, trashing everyone. Don't play places of arcane power. Play a different scenario. It's another tool TOs can use. Yeah, I, I think that's, like, fairly important is that, as we've kind of talked about, different ones of these scenarios benefit different things and that if something is a problem in the meta game, or if something is more powerful than its competitors, scenario choice is potentially a way to rein that in or push the like the, the influences or the reasons for taking things in a different way. 
and that's maybe something that we haven't heard people talk about so much in public forums in the con- and in content creation, but is something that I think TOs are already thinking about. And yeah, like hopefully this kind of discussion is constructive in terms of like illuminating what kind of things are benefited by different scenarios and how that might help rein certain things in. So just a minor point for this scenario as well. Under the victory points, the number of victory points scored is equal to the number of consecutive turns the player has controlled the objective. So the important word there is player rather than unit or model. So what that means is you could go and take an objective with a particular model and then you could swap that out for a different model to continue scoring if you needed to or you could could tap and go. So that's important because I think under the old duality, it was the same model. So people might sort of have that. Yeah, hadn't considered that. Yeah. Yeah, there's something in there about like if you kill their model that has it, That's you right. then get it, yep. which this scenario I don't think has. No. Yeah. Um, and again, I think as is the general kind of shape with things, the slight upgrades or variations on older versions of things, I, I think our general consensus is that they're improvements. Look like with better part of Valor over Scorched Earth and uh, this over Duality of Death, similar kind of concept, but maybe a better overall execution. And I, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but maybe we would suggest that for TOs choosing scenarios, the, the more recent updates are probably better choices mm-hmm. than the older ones. Interestingly, Sam, it says only one model can control each objective. If more than one model is eligible, then the first to arrive controls it. And it says you lose control of the objective if you move uh, the hero wizard, finishes a move more than three inches away. So would that count as losing control of the objective? Even if one of them would then pick it up? Depending on who you listen to, that can lead to some really weird situations. So if I have five evocators, they move on to the objective. They're a wizard because there's five of them. And then you shoot a bunch of them off. And, and now there's, one only, left. there's only one. It's no longer a wizard, but I haven't moved off the objective. Mm. And so I kind of like weirdly have it forever. I, I assume that FAQs or TOs are going to say, fuck off evocators. We're going to have some sensible rulings to sort out that shit. But in terms of rules as written, there's some weird stuff that crops up out of it. It also says only one model can control each objective. So if you kill... And it says if more than one model is eligible, then the first to arrive control it. Does that mean one of those evocators is holding it if I kill that particular evocator? Well, you need to be two or more evocators to be a wizard. So one evocator is never a wizard. No, two or more evocators <laughs> makes the whole unit a wizard. Or I the TO know. will tell you to fuck off yeah, evocators. Probably. So let's talk about the one scenario that's even more confusing than this conversation. This this is a cluster (laughs) of a scenario. The relocation orb. I want to play it. I just, it seems so cool. Like it, but, oh my God, it's a cluster. Lockie, I think, Lockie, did we play this? Yeah, we did. And And we, 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 we I think we stuffed up the deployment. Yeah, we fucked up the deployment. So we deployed in the bottom left and the top right instead of the top left and the bottom right. And it actually matters because you look at (laughs) it, you're like, where is it going? It's (laughs) the same, right? No, but... Um, that was it, a nightmare. Yeah, no, it's it's a pain in the ass. And but what have you guys thought about actually playing it? This is one that is worse than Star Strike in terms of privileging poor play. So if you get lucky and you you hit a couple of sixes and ones and whatever, this can go from one side of the board to the other. Um, so I played this on the weekends. Turn one, we rolled a six, so it came diagonally towards my deployment zone. Um, we then rolled 
a um, a one, so it went further towards my side of the board, and then we rolled a two, and it came back. So what that means is it had gone from the centre of the board to being 12 inches away from my board edge, and my opponent had gone and collected it from the middle and just couldn't couldn't get to it for the rest of the game, not through any mistake of his own. Yeah, I kind of... I feel like this scenario doesn't reward good play. It kind of rewards, you know, who happens to end up with it. It rewards being able to space out and contest multiple spaces at once. To push back against that, as you've been saying, like, throughout this episode, you, you really value the ability to control large amounts of board space and you think that's an interesting element of the game. Yep. This is a scenario that whilst being random, you can mitigate some of that randomness by controlling more of the board space than your opponent. The the issue obviously being the randomness element. Yeah, the issue is that like if the if the orb goes to one side, which it does on its first move, I think. Yeah, its first move it it, it it privileges one side of the board. So you can spread out to kind of mitigate that, but if you just sit in the middle with your whole blob and then as soon as it commits, you just chuck your whole blob into that corner, it basically, it needs a couple consecutive rolls to get out of that side of the board. And so, you know, if it's just 50-50 which side it goes to and one player's got each side, you know, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. What I do, There's two elements yeah. that I like about this scenario. The first is that heroes and wizards count as like 20 models rather than just they're the only thing that control it. So I think that would be great in things like Places of Arcane Power and Duality of Death. Is 20 maybe too much? Because it's pretty hard to fit 20, uh, 20 models in range of the objective. Sure, but you know if that was 10, I think that'd be a really good scenario. The other thing I like about it is the fact that you score one point if you had the first turn in the battle round and mm-hmm. three points if you had the second. Because it is easier to grab things and hold them than it is to take them off stuff. Yeah, I was I was going to say that, and I think um, because that, I remember that um, having a big effect in our game, and then you because it affects the double turn as well. Like, and it's the mentality is, do you want to give up the double turn now, or do you want to keep, or like, do you want to take the double turn now, or do you want to just concede the turn and then so you're able to score the three later on? And it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I know there's there's some randomness in terms of where the objective is actually going, but there's actual um, decision-making that, that makes... Well, that matters. I guess that there's a kind of, like, pl- like tension or playoff there mm-hmm. where if you, like, you look at something and you say, it's random, I could control three-fifths of the board and my opponent will sometimes randomly get the objective in their part of the board and that feels shit for me because I controlled most of the board but my opponent won. But you multiply that across however many games at a tournament or you kind of multiply that across whatever is required to kind of fudge out those averages and then controlling more of the board on average will give you a greater chance to win. And like, that seems good, but on an individual game basis where controlling more of the board doesn't guarantee you the win, that kind of feels bad. But you're only playing the scenario once. It's not like yeah. you're playing the scenario over five games. I think yeah, but o- over a tournament, you're playing the scenario like a hundred times at CanCon, for example. And so, you know, like there's some randomness in it, but does it average out? Is that something that's good? I don't know. I think uh, we've discussed the different strengths of all the different um, battle plans. And this one, I just don't kind of see what it's, you know, designed to favour. So, you know, you've got your board control ones like... Um, uh, I can't remember 
remember their names. I haven't Shifting objectives or Starstrike? Yeah, exactly. Like, you've got the ones that bias board control, and I think some of them do it more elegantly than Relocation Orb does. And I think there's, yeah, other, other issues with it. But I think it's a super fluffy and cool scenario that I would more than happily play in a not even just a narrative game, but just a social game at a club. I'd love to play it, but yeah, not a massive fan of it for tournaments. The fact that there's like 17 different points that a thing could end up at seems like unnecessarily complicated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, yeah, as you say, it's really kind of cool and maybe that's a good enough reason to play it at tournaments. But if you're looking for a like balanced, competitive kind of random objective thing and we're choosing between like relocation or star strike and shifting objectives... Personally, I prefer shifting objectives, but I can totally see some of the others being preferred uh, either for the better deployment zones you get or for the different ways that the randomness is kind of averaged out. Uh, At the very least, we can see that Games Workshop likes the idea of randomized objective worth. And then there are different, like better or worse ways of including that into tournament packs or into games. All right. So yeah, hot tip: don't don't stuff up the deployment in relocation orb. It's a, it's an absolute <laughs> mess. Um, but yeah, that's been a super long segment. I think we've pretty much covered what we need to cover about scenarios. What's the best scenario? Ooh, Probably better part of valor is the best. Better part of valor is my favorite. It's my favorite. Uh, I think mine is probably focal points or scorched earth. Yeah, focal focal points is definitely the most. Tournament worthy. I, I think, think, like, yeah, f- focal points and better part of valor. I think are the the two clear yeah, the standouts backbone. for me. Yeah. Um, and, and at least in the case of better part of valor, I think Scotch Earth is also really good. It's just that they're kind of variations on the same thing. I've really come around on total commitment. It is definitely the worst by a long shot. I think it should be in all tournaments. I, I think if you do, you reduce the amount of variety in armies, you make the tournament generally more boring and you fuck me off and that's something you don't want to do because I have a platform and I'm not afraid to use it. So re- reducing variety is a different conversation and it's an interesting one because probably secondaries and, and tertiary objectives is something. It sounds like we could do a whole podcast on this. That, yeah, that, that warrants longer conversation. I, I mean, there are lots of different ways of doing secondary objectives. There are lots of ways that Age of Sigma tournaments do it. They're like in bolt action. I think it's whose army is more historically who's, accurately who's painted. Got, who's Lucky. got the longer neck beard? Who's painted the correct number of buttons on their commander's trench coat? I think is the secondary objective in bolt action. Well, I think the the, the primary objective in bolt action, like at least some people want it to be, is like who had the most fun or something like that. So it's like <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that sounds fucking. Terrible. I love, yeah, that, I, know, right? I love that you roll your eyes when you say that. Yeah. If you can't even say it with a straight face, you no, can. No wonder you don't like sports scoring in tournaments. No, I just want to curb stop my enemies on the way. Airstrike, the airstrike. <laughs> All right. It's been a long ass segment. We're going to come back after a little break and we're just going to talk about a little bit of random shit, some tournaments in the future, things we're excited for, and then we're going to we'll let you go.
Last time in this episode, we are back. If you're even still listening, because you hope it's the last time. That segment was so long, but apparently informative. Hopefully, uh, we we have decided that it's informative. Lockie learned something. Uh, yeah, I was about to say I, I learned a lot. Um, apparently, there's twelve scenarios. Is it was you know, actually eighteen? They, oh, is it? They, they make you do different things. Think it's of great. how much longer that segment could have been. Yeah, and just think of how many more points you can get for having sports in those scenarios. <laughs> Let's not go over that again. <laughs> what we are going to go over again is CanCon. Because we are super, super hyped and excited for CanCon. I haven't done CanCon in a few years. I'm going to be painting the stuff. I'm going to have my new army ready. 200 motherfucking players. Like, I've spent... Holy shit. I've spent the last like two months painting an army for a tournament that is like CanCon practice. Like I'm so fucking ready for CanCon that I'm like... like everything that's happened between now and then is just me trying to win CanCon again. Again. <laughs> Not for the first time. Again. So in the rich history of prepping properly, we will be running a primer event for CanCon. The dwellers below is pleased to announce Drum roll. Smorgancon. No <laughs> National Treasure. The dwellers be- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The dwellers below only recognise yeah. Nicholas Cage Nick- themed names. So it have to be Smorgancon too though, right? There there was a first. Yeah, it's it's, it's National yeah. Treasure too. Oh true, yes. There were two of those as well. Oh, yeah. Of course. There were also two Ghost Riders, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> what was the second one called? Just Ghost, Ghost Rider 2. <laughs> no, that's much less fun. So, right. Smorgan Con 2, National Treasure 2. Shout out to Smorgan, who's presumably the one running Smorgan Con. Uh, I'm running it in conjunction with long-running dweller Brad. Yep. Um, He's that's a person depending who's on, on this podcast. whether his Canadian visa is going to be eligible next year. From sure Cast Ice Podcast. I say he won't be... C-A-S-T. He won't be running a Cast Ice event. D-I-C-E. No, no, so Brad and I will run that at Good Games Melbourne. Um, home of the Rainbow Serpent GT. Home of SmorganCon National Treasure. <laughs> Two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so massive shout out to Brian for his support. Uh, nominally, it's going to run on Sunday the 13th. Um, we'll confirm this and get an event up of, of January. So that's two weeks prior to CanCon. Um, incidentally, it's the same day as list submission. So lists are due at midnight. So it's a good opportunity to give your lists a final test. And then if you're me, agonize over them for the you know the next eight hours. So, so is, if there, you, is there only eight, one day? One day three up, games. three games. So it's not we'll, really a tournament so much as we'll, a, a, tournament we'll play, a probably, hobby day. It's probably worth no rankings points, right? Well, I, I, depending on whether I win or not, I may or may not <laughs> submit it to the rankings. <laughs> You talk about like two weeks of list kind of, you know, t- thinking about the list you've submitted. Someone's already submitted a CanCon list. I, I've already been agonizing over my CanCon list for the last mm-hmm. month and I will continue doing it until the minute before it's submitted. Yeah, I suspect I'll do the same. So I shared mine in our WhatsApp recently. Oh, that, that was actually that was, that's, that's where my thinking's at at the moment, but subject to significant change. I, so it sounds to me like we have similar thinkings, but mm-hmm. different executions. That's, that's exactly why I posted it, because I thought some other motherfucker is yeah. going to land on this in so, the so, echo chamber. So, so, so echo we, should, chamber. we should talk about this more offline and come up with what the actual answer is, this is which is probably podcast. like 75% of yours, 10% of mine, and 15% of... Mm-hmm. Who fucking knows? Jack Armstrong's. I mean, I've already tried to copy his list and you called me on that, so fuck you. All right, 13th of January. 13th of January. I'm going to be there. Good Games Melbourne. Um, we've had Kakawa from, Kakawa! Wollong- Kakawa! from 
Woolen Gronk reach out to say that he's keen on trucking down. Um, I've had Pete Atkinson from Titan, had some of the boys from Bendigo. Like we're, we're actually so far, it's, it sounds like we're going to get pretty good representation. Just a really good opportunity to, to roll some dice and, and stress test your, your list prior to submission. And also put into practice some of the bullshit we've been talking about on this episode about how to run your tournaments. What scenarios are you going to play? <laughs> So the scenarios will be dictated by whatever CanCon's running. So I'm But if CanCon aren't releasing their scenarios until the day. I suspect CanCon are gonna release both the scenarios and how the realms are gonna interact a long time prior to list submission. You say if, suspect. If, Sounds if, like you have the inside word. <laughs> if they don't, I'll be DMing Clint on the regular. <laughs> so look forward to that spam. Clint, please fucking tell me I don't know what I'm doing. I just can't deal with ambiguity. <laughs> we did say we like certainty. All right, cool. A uh, couple weeks away is Bendigo Bush Bash Bonanza, I think it's called. I'm pretty keen for that. I'm keen to roll some dice. It's been a while. I'm extremely keen. I've bought and painted painted an entire army for this event. So it's like the eighth time you've said that. Yeah, I know. It's, so, it's a really big deal for me. Hey, what it's army significant. Why are you fucking undermining this shit? The hammers and sickles of Sigma. Have I told you about their fluff? No. Okay, so and, basically... And, and, the and idea you won't. Because you're on mute again. Um, I've painted one model, which I'm not ever going to use. I'm going to be using Lizard Men with some Evocators because they're pretty good. Lockie, Daughters of Cain. Be running the Daughters. Uh, the, the, Sam has convinced me that Blackguard are pretty good as well, so I'm going to mm-hmm. try and ally them them in. Uh, probably a Horde of 30. Interesting. 30 Blackguard is gas. That That is my hot take. The Shade Star's a thing. The Shade Star? What? The Shade Star has been relegated, so that's called Warhammer Legends. And you can only play it in narrative. So I don't know if you've seen, but Dark Elves actually have an army book, like an eighth head army book. Yeah, that's for, bizarre. For Age of Sigma. For Age of Sigma, with all the eighth head special characters, can I with use it? shades, with notes. I literally just said it's only for narrative. <laughs> so I'm looking well, forward. Can I use it? I'll tell you what. You won't get any sports points. That's for sure. I'm very much looking forward to when they throw the old Tomb Kings. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, is this Sam saying "fuck off, Dan Brewer"? No, that, no, literally, that's not what I'm saying, and Nick should probably edit that out because it's the furthest thing from what I'm saying. You're saying "fuck off, Randy," aren't you? Yes, I, that's exactly <laughs> what I was saying. Thank you. But did they stop making Tomb King models ages ago? Yeah, ages ago. Kind of. And they also haven't updated the War Scroll points for over two years, and they don't have a basing chart. So you just run those snakes on forty mil rounds, baby. Why Ooh, 40? Uh, 20 mils. Challenge <laughs> issued. Yeah, just have them standing up on their, on their tails or whatever. Exactly. Just like a vertical snake. Right, oh, no. Like, on like a, you, you convert like a pillar and they can wrap around a pillar or something. Now everyone's <laughs> muted except for me. This is going nowhere. This is the end of the episode. I'm just calling it right here, right now. Adam Burt. Adam Burt. You, <laughs> Adam Burt can wait till next time. <laughs> Shout out to Adam Burt. Chris Cousins has a bit of a man crush on you and wants to get freaky with you at CanCon and he's going to go on some rant next time. But this is it. I'm calling it. This episode's over. I'm using my like powers as like administrator <laughs> of this podcast. It's done. It's gone. It's not coming back for at least another month. Don't fail your strength test. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. 
revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the point from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm, women liberationists, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.